Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got it! Looking away, McCann around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! He gone! And he makes a catch up against the wall. And he's going to watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to the Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website. We are SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You can find us online at blessyouboys.com, also on Twitter at Bless You Boys, and on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hook Slide, along with my co-host, Rob Rojacki. And Rob, it's just two weeks from today. Tigers fans will be able to listen to an actual spring training game on Tigers Radio, complete with Dan Dickerson and Jim Price back on the mics. This is cause for celebration. Well, we're two, just two days away from spring training. Let's not even get ahead of ourselves here. There's baseball and fuzzy beat writer pictures to be had just a couple <laughs> days from now. Oh, boy, am I looking forward to fuzzy beat writer pictures. Uh, how could I have possibly overlooked that in my excitement to actually hear a baseball game being called? I mean, it's closer, so that's right. I don't know if I want to wait two weeks. Baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. Uh, we have got a full plate of things to talk about for this show. We're going to look at the starting rotation and talk about what to expect. We'll spend some time analyzing the bullpen. We'll get bold and make some preseason predictions. Of course, we'll take some listener questions as usual. And then Dan Dickerson will be stopping by at the end of the show to talk about the upcoming season and make us feel good about baseball and life in general. But before we do all that, let's round the bases and talk about the fact that the Tigers are being ranked left and right by experts and software as a team that won't go over 85 wins. How wrong are those projections? We'll talk about that next. Six 210-pound righty delivers as a fly ball left field. This one's deep. This one's got a chance. And this ball is gone! A home run! Ian Kinsler delivers the walk-off! Number six for Ian. He rounds third. Heads into the mob scene at home. And the Tigers take the series from D.C. A walk-off home run from Kinsler, 8-6. All right, Rob, let's kick things off with the Rounding the Basis segment. I'm just going to go with Boo Projection Systems. That's that's what I've got for my teaser. Well, they don't seem to like us very much. No, they hate us, and I hate them right back. And it's uh, Actually, I, I know better. Projection Systems are just software. That's that's all it is. It's don't bits you and work, bytes. Don't you work with computers? Yes, and I hate them. I, Reprogram. All, all the more reason to freaking hate computers. I know them up close and personal. They're awful. They're horrible. And <laughs> I'm laughing because I saw one of our comments on Facebook in response to that Pakoda projection post, and the guy actually said something to the effect of, what jerk face wrote this? So I don't, I don't know if he knew that it was a computer. Well, I mean, technically, thing. if we're being technical about it, that jerk face would be Nate Silver, who's yeah. kind of famous now. Yeah, Nate, Nate Silver is the guy that uh, actually created the Pakoda system originally he doesn't ha- uh-huh. i don't think have anything to do with it now i was just telling you guys in the in the chat room earlier though it's kind of funny because as i was i actually read his book uh the signal and the noise um it's a very interesting book on projections in general and predictions and why things go right and why they go wrong and uh nate silver is actually a michigan guy he he 
grew up in Michigan. His favorite team is the Detroit Tigers. Uh, so if there's any um, bias in the system, it's certainly not because he built anything anti-Tigers into it. He's a Tigers fan, so it's it's just the raw numbers. So what do you make of these projections, Rob? I mean, that, I mean there's Pakota was the most recent, but they're they're falling in line right with everybody else. You know, USA Today put out their rankings and had the White Sox winning the division. Like, what idiot would ever predict that? <clears throat> well, the White Sox prediction was USA Today. I mean, they didn't offer right. up a a projection system. So let's let's be clear that the, no. the computers are not the ones p- p- picking the White Sox here. No, they computers. Are well, the computers tend to like the Indians, which um, you mm. kind of understand. Um, a lot of times with these projection systems, they really like strikeouts. I believe that they were very high in the Tigers when they had their kind of monster rotation. And so it makes sense that they're, you know, they're kind of in bed with the Indians here and picking them to win the division in most cases. Um, but as far as the Tigers go, I think you kind of understand why some of these projection systems are a little bit down on them. Obviously, they had a rough year last year. Victor Martinez was awful, and he's you know only getting older. Miguel Cabrera has struggled to stay healthy over the last couple of years. You know, you've got some younger guys who are tough to project, and Nick Castellanos and James McCann. Um, J.D. Martinez, while he's had two excellent seasons in a row, he was, you know, quite awful before that mm-hmm. in his years in Houston. So, you know, it seems like, you know, the projection systems aren't perfect. Uh, they're very good kind of as a whole at looking at, you know, everything and they're able to pick out, you know, certain trends and whatnot and, you know, occasionally find players that are, you know, ready to break out. But I think when you parse it down and look at it as closely as we're doing, you will find a lot of the flaws in those systems. And that's why we... You know, we're able to pick it apart and say, oh, this is why they're wrong. Yeah, it's it's one of these, uh, you know, in software, we always say garbage in, garbage out. And, you know, and I think in the case of the Tigers, it's a unique situation. You mentioned uh, that they had so many players last year with down years. That's going to skew the data, especially these systems that are built on, you know, previous historical data. 2015 is such an anomaly that you almost feel like you should just throw that right out, you know, as, as part of the data set because it's going to skew things so far. And if it's not... You know, guys like Cabrera, Martinez, Verlander, you know, having Sanchez, you know, Green having down years like that. It's it's younger guys like McCann or Iglesias or Castellanos who just haven't been around long enough in the big leagues to really establish, I don't think, you know, full patterns. So the Tigers are, I think, I think very difficult to pin down in any kind of projection system. That's why I don't try to, I gave up trying to write software that would give me any kind of indication, you know, on, on what their season would look like. It's 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 become more of a gut feeling, don't you feel like it's they've almost become the Kansas City Royals in that respect? We just said last week, the Kansas City Royals you can you can pick something up from you know gut feel from just looking at it, but the numbers don't like them. I feel like the Tigers might be in that same spot. They definitely could be. Uh, oddly enough, the Royals were actually project, projected to win fewer games than the Tigers. <laughs> I believe Pakota had them at seventy six wins, which yes. I think was the lowest in the entire American League, which I just found very funny. And they ran a couple of articles today, you know, titled "Pakota Hates the Royals," um, just kind of you know poking fun at that. Um, but I think that there are some things that you know those projection systems don't necessarily pick up on. It's very hard to quantify defense. Uh, you know, we've noticed that, you know, even though with M- James McCann's subpar pitch framing numbers, he's been very good at some, uh, you know, quite a few other things. And he's still a young player who will, you know, hopefully improve under the tutelage of Brad Osmus and the other veterans on the staff. Um, and you have, you know, just some other things that they don't necessarily, 
uh, measure too well. You know, they're projecting the Tigers to be one of the worst base running teams in the league, and we're hopefully going to see some improvements out of them as some of these other young players, uh, Nick Castellanos in particular, maybe take a step forward in that regard. So we'll see kind of what happens. Uh, you know, I'm taking a look at it now. Uh, the Pakota projections also have the Tigers as one of the worst fielding teams in mm. the in the American League, which is. Uh, I think a lot of that is due to kind of the subpar numbers that Anthony Ghost and Jose Iglesias had last year. We've taken a look at that. Um, I know that some of the stat cast numbers in particular really like Ghost in center field, and the eye test kind of indicates that, you know, he's a, you know, definitely not a below average center fielder. You know, he may not be, you know, an elite defender, but he's definitely someone you like having out there in spacious center field at Comerica Park. And then Jose Iglesias, we know that, you know, he's just an excellent defender. You know, he occasionally makes the, you know, rare boneheaded play uh, on something that's kind of routine, which I think skews some of his numbers, but he's also making some plays that, you know, few shortstops in the games are making, so. Yeah, I think as the stat cast thing becomes a little more commonplace and we get access to, you know, some of that data in the way that we have access to, say, like, pitch FX data. Yeah, uh, and I think that's a big component of that, is that, you know, not a lot of that stuff is public, and so teams have access to a lot of data that we don't. But you mentioned how StatCast likes Anthony Ghost. The eye test likes Anthony Ghost. And yeah, I, I know I was looking at his uh, fan graphs numbers the other day, just a couple days ago. And for his defensive run saved, he was at like negative 12. And I was I was shocked. And I didn't check on Iglesias, but I, I'm pretty sure at one point during the season, he was also ranked in a negative defensive run saved number as well. You just kind of look at that and go, that's that can't be right. We've we've got a ways to go with the defensive metrics still. And then you've got a guy like Johnny Peralta, who's consistently one of the best shortstops in the league in that. I mean, <laughs> that's just going to... That'll rip your confidence in a defensive run saved as a statistic when you're saying that <laughs> Peralta is a better shortstop than Iglesias. Uh, he's a sure-handed player. We'll give him that. Well, he, he was. Got his done. Uh, for the two or three steps to the right or left that he would take, yeah, he was extremely sure-handed in that range. I still have the words past a diving Peralta in my head. <laughs> he never dove. What are you joking? He would kind of gallop after it and lean a little bit to his left, and yeah, there wasn't any real diving, I don't think. Apparently it was good enough for Mario and Pemba. There you go. <laughs> it's a, a general lean towards the baseball was a dive. Past a diving, leaning Peralta. Uh, going back to, to Pakota, one of the things that stood out, and you and I talked about this, one of the reasons why they're so down on that win projection, uh, win totals for the Tigers, is that they have them scoring only 693 runs which is odd because the Tigers only scored 689 last year, and that was with all kinds of things going wrong, with you know the offense being broken, VMart having a bad year, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How in the world did they figure 693 runs? I mean, it's got to be more than that. It definitely does. Um, you know, if you break that down by game, the Tigers are looking at less than 4.3 runs per game, which would have been one of the lower totals in the American League last year. I believe the average team in the AL scored about 710 runs last season. Um, the projection systems are typically a little bit more conservative. You know, they're taking, you know, they're making all these different simulations and then taking kind of the average of those. Uh, so you get kind of a bit more conservative look at a lot of players. Uh, but 693 just seems like a very low, uh, you know, just a very low total for a team with, you know, a lineup consisting of Ian Kinsler, Justin Upton, Miguel Cabrera, Victor Martinez, and JD Martinez in the top five spots. I think that especially if they do 
keep those five together and don't necessarily try to bring that up, uh, that's going to be you know just too dangerous of a lineup for opposing pitching staffs to work through. And I think they're going to score a lot more runs than that. We could see them pushing maybe 50 more runs in that projected total if things go right. Yeah, I think it's it's not at all difficult to imagine that scenario playing out. Just as you know, I, I noticed one of the things that stood out, you know, in the uh, detail by detail breakdown is that they had both Miguel Cabrera and JD Martinez coming in under 30 home runs for the end of the year. And I think, well, okay, maybe if you base that on the last couple of years, like we said, JD Martinez wasn't super great, you know, prior to his coming to Detroit. And I know Cabrera came off of core muscle surgery in in 2014, and then he had you know that foot surgery in 20. 20- 15 off season, you know, in both seasons, he was hitting for a far less power than we're, we're used to seeing. So I'm sure that skews the number, but I, I, I've got to believe at least one of those guys gets above the 30 home run total, if not both of them. Yeah. I'd like to think that both of them do. Um, Cabrera is coming off of his first healthy off season and, you know, I don't even know how long now, and he's only projected to hit 27 home runs with only 94 RBIs this year. I don't necessarily know if Pakota, Pakota is thinking that he's just not going to play in that many games or what have you, but that seems like some very low totals for a guy who has consistently been, you know, at, you know, 25, 30 home runs and over a hundred RBIs for most of his career. Um, as far as J.D. Martinez goes, you know, I could kind of envision maybe him regressing a little bit, um, but Pakota has him at only 23 home runs. I think that if he does regress, we're looking at something like 28 to 30 in that range. So I think, you know, that's kind of more of his floor at that point. He just has too much power and has made, you know, that big change to his swing that's going to keep him... Um, at least a power threat to play. You know, we'll see if the you know the changes in his walk rate and the improvements he made there last year stick around this year. Um, but he's got too much power in that bat, and teams aren't necessarily going to be able to work around him, depending on where he's hitting in the lineup. So I think that he's still going to hit for hit for plenty of power, and hopefully he can keep the average up as well. You know, it's it's a thing that keeps coming up over and over again. Uh, this if question: the Tigers could win a hundred games if, 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 and one of the things is health, right? So it's if Cabrera can stay healthy, if Victor Martinez can stay healthy. And I was thinking today, Rob, that you know, there's there's two different ways to say if. I could say uh, if I win the lottery tomorrow, then certain things are going to happen, or I could say if I get up early enough tomorrow, I'll have time to go to Starbucks. Uh, one of those things is probably not going to happen. One of them probably is. It's two different, <laughs> two different outcomes for the same if kind of question. Let's let's go ahead and make the prediction, okay? Because you're the doctor. If Miguel Cabrera can stay healthy, yes. If Vimar can stay healthy, but are they going to? What do you think the chances of them actually staying healthy really are? It seems weird to say, but I actually think that Martinez is the more likely one to stay healthy. Um, you know, Victor's injury last year was really just a one knee injury. Uh, he had the surgery, he rushed back from it, and just wasn't really the same the rest of the year. Um, we haven't heard much about him this off season, which, you know, given his previous history is actually a good thing. Um, but as far as Cabrera goes, he just seems to get dinged up in the smallest ways every single year, whether he's been healthy throughout the off season or not. Um, I'm trying to think back and was it maybe 2012 was the last time that he made it through a full season without something going wrong later on in the year. You know, he was banged up towards the end of 2013. 
He had the whole core muscle surgery and whatnot in 2014 and then wasn't necessarily right for most of 2015. Uh, you know, that's three years of being kind of banged up, taking a toll on a very large body. Uh, and, uh, you know, bigger players like that haven't necessarily aged well. Cabrera hasn't always been the best about staying in shape. He's not necessarily Prince Fielder, per se, <laughs> but he's still a bigger player. And those guys tend to break down over time. So we'll see. Um you know, hopefully the Tigers are able to keep him healthy. You know, maybe with some more of the big bats in the lineup, they're able to kind of shuffle things around, give him the occasional day off if he needs it. Um, but we'll we'll see on that. I think that, you know, I don't necessarily know that either one will hit the disabled list uh, throughout the year. I know that Cabrera, I think last year was his first time on the DL, correct? Seems like he went there in 2013 as well. Uh when he played that game uh, in on the on the turf and the Astro turf there in Toronto and uh had some issues. I think he missed a few weeks, 10 days, maybe 14 days. Something like that. Uh, it may have been something like that, that he didn't necessarily hit the DL for. Yeah. Um, but I think there will be, you know, times throughout the year where he's banged up. Uh, it just kind of has been one of those things. And at this point, I'm almost kind of thinking that he has to kind of prove that he can stay fully healthy for the full year before I, before I really trust him in that regard. It's funny because I remember that now we're talking about 2013 uh, when he hurt himself, you know, in uh, in Toronto and we all kind of blamed, you know, a, a combination of things. Yeah, he was playing on the AstroTurf and he was playing third base at the time. And we all kind of said he needs to not be playing at the hot corner if he's going to continue to stay healthy. And what's sort of irritating, uh, irritating to me is that when he finally got to move back to first base in 2014 because Nick Castellanos took over at third base. That whole season was marred by the core muscle surgery, so he was never really quite, didn't have the, the power stroke that he normally did. And then 2015, the beginning of that season, he had the foot surgery, the screws put in, and didn't really have the leg power, he said later, you know, just didn't feel like he had that, that power swing again. So we have yet to see if moving him back to first base is really going to be more of a preventative thing. It just he hasn't been right ever since 2013. Well, now that you now that you mention it, pretty much everything that's happened to him over the last three or four years has happened when he's been running the bases. So, true, true. what he needs to do is just hit more home runs so that he can just jog around the bases. That's right. When he had that uh, the core muscle problem at the end of 2013, that was a direct result of a weird slide into second base during the Oakland A's series there in Comerica, and uh, he it seems like he hasn't been quite okay ever since then. And yeah, did, isn't that what happened last year too? Right? He he got hurt sliding into second or something. Well, he was taking off for second base and like strained right. his calf <laughs> against the Blue Jays again. I think. <laughs> Man, it's stop so playing Toronto, or just stop running the bases, like you Damn said. Damn it, Canada! See, and if he had the power stroke, you know, then he would be able to run the bases, jog the bases, you know, more home run trots. So maybe it all converges this year. Maybe this year he hits forty-five home runs and takes the stress off those legs. I'm still blaming Canada. Okay, I've, I have no problem with that. I've uh, no, I'm not going to say any more because we have Canadian listeners, so I don't want to get hate mail. All right, we talked about the big players. We talked about Cabrera, Martinez. Um, there's all these little pieces that fit in and around that, though. You need know if you don't have the big guys working, then you got big problems. But you also need to have, you know. We always use this term, a well-rounded team. You've got to get contributions up and down that lineup. Let's just kind of go through a couple of these guys. Uh, Nick Castellanos is probably first on the list. Um, someone that struggled in 2014 and everyone was, you know, probably prematurely disappointed because he was sold with such high expectations. 2015, I think he was showing an upward trend toward the end of that season. I'm expecting good things in, in 2016. 
I am too. Uh, you know, we kind of pointed back to this quite a bit throughout the offseason, even, you know, through parts of last season, um, where Castellanos, you know, he was benched, I believe it was in a series against the Yankees, that he sat out for two or three games there and then came back after that and really kind of tore the cover off the ball. Um, so we'll see what happens with him. Um, I'm actually reading an or rereading an article now uh, on Fangrass by Eno Saris titled The Wait for Nick Castellanos Will Soon Be Over. Uh, and it points out not necessarily Castellanos' improvements in batting average or power or anything like that, um, but how much better he was uh, as far as plate discipline goes and not swinging at bad pitches. And I think that that's one of the big things that really kind of hindered him throughout the early part of the uh, throughout the early part of his career is you know the tendency to swing at that slider and dirt or whatnot or you know not necessarily wait for his pitch. Um, part of that I think is just the you know the the lack of experience at his age, um, you know, he may have been a little bit rushed through the minor leagues as well. Um, but, you know, if he, this, you know, if these improvements over the course of, you know, going on four months now are legitimate, then we could really be in for kind of a breakout season from him. Uh, if he's, you know, able to up his walk rate a little bit, he did that slightly in 2015. Um, but if he was able to kind of up, up that walk rate a bit and supplement his batting average with a better on base percentage, I think that's going to open a lot of doors for him. And then, you know, <clears throat> with him showing improvements in the plate discipline as well, I think he's just going to be swinging at better pitches and will hopefully, you know, make some better contact, making some harder contact and hitting for a bit more power. You know, people got to remember he is so young. I mean, it's just the fact that, that he played in 2014 and in 2015, and the fact that in, even in 2013, we were hearing so much about him. You know, when are we going to see Castellanos come up? It just kind of feels like he's been around for a couple of years now. It feels like he's a guy that should probably be in his mid to late 20s by now, but he's not. He's what, 23, 24? He turns 24 in two weeks. Good Lord. He's only 23 years old. I mean, you're talking about what? when do players hit their prime in baseball? 27, 28? Late 20s, yeah, 27, 28. Those are kind of the prime season. He's got years. This is just barely ramp-up period, you know, to head into the prime. Yeah, it's so early to be writing him off at all or to be disappointed at all. And uh, I'm I'm with you in saying that, you know, I think that that upward trend last year is a sign of, you know, I think he's getting there. I I think he's headed toward prime territory in the next couple years. Let's talk about another youngster uh, that did get his his rookie appearance last year. James McCann thought he did a great job defensively. We love to talk about the McCannon, you know, and throwing out runners and so forth. But he struggled offensively. Funny how people were very uh, quick to accept that when they weren't willing to accept that with Alex Avila. We'll see how much longer that lasts. But the fact of the matter is that he now has a platoon partner in Jared Saltalamacchia that that should alleviate some of that pressure. I think it will, but at the same time, you'd definitely like to see some improvements from McCann against right-handed pitching. Uh, he hit only 247 with a 277 on base percentage against righties last year. That's only a 3% walk rate, which is not obviously not very good there. Um, but if he's if he's uh, you know if he's going to really kind of take a step forward and take control of that starting job, he's going to need to be able to hit against right-handed pitchers. Um, you know, he's a good defend, a good defensive backstop. He, you know, we're not really sure about his game calling skills yet, but obviously he's able to, you know, throw out pretty much any base runner you, know, you throw at him. Um, I think he threw out Billy Hamilton last year and was That's one of true. just a couple catchers in baseball to do that. Um, so he's definitely got the arm to, you know, really control the running game. But if he's not providing much offensively, um, you know, is it really worth 
you know, that kind of one, you know, those one or two qualities that he has, uh, because his pitch framing, like we said, is not that great. Uh, is it worth those couple qualities behind the plate when you're getting, you know, almost nothing out of him offensively? Um, I guess the question there, there, the other question is also, you know, which Jared Saltalamaki are we going to get? You know, the guy who, you know, he hit well, he's a very productive hitter while he was in Boston for three or four seasons. Uh, but then he gets to Miami and, he, Miami and he really kind of falls off. And the Marlins actually released him early last season because he was struggling so much at the plate. He bounced back a little bit in Arizona, but that was kind of a smaller sample size last season. Uh, and, you know, the Diamondback Stadium is a very, uh, very friendly hitter's hitters environment so we'll see how he bounces back uh you know that's kind of one of the bigger question marks that the tigers have this year even though the two guys are already slotted into the lineup uh is just kind of what exactly they're going to get out of that catching position both offensively and defensively i'm very much looking forward to seeing it i I know as you said he had better times in boston than he did afterwards but as we both know he's got a much better presence against right-handed pitching from the left-handed side of the plate he's a switch hitter but when he hits from the left side the power goes up the average goes everything goes up and so I'm hoping to see you know if he's used correctly and that's that's going to be on Brad Osmus to deploy that strategy in the proper way but if he's used correctly I think that could be a, a real two for one I mean literally having a McCann and uh you know, Saltalamakia playing off of each other like that hopefully you get the best out of Saltalamakia that you possibly could now, when it comes to uh, Jose Iglesias, this has been kind of an ongoing question, right? He came to us from the Boston Red Sox in 2013, and there was a lot of talk of, hey, this is a guy that could probably hit close to 300, and a lot of talk on the other side saying, no, he's you know he's a rookie, you can't say that yet. We didn't really get to get a good look at him because he went down for all of 2014 with the shin problems. So he comes back in 2015, we finally get a full season's look at what Jose Iglesias is doing, and lo and behold, he comes close to that 300 mark. Can he sustain that? I don't necessarily know if he can sustain a 300 average, but I think it's definitely time to up our expectations from what we originally thought as far as like, you know, maybe he'll hit like 250, 260 with an okay on-base percentage. Um, He's definitely better than that. You know, I think he'll be probably closer to, you know, the 280 range at worst, um, because he's, you know, he's so great at making contact. He's not going to strike out very much. And he's going to put the ball in play quite a bit. And when he does put the ball in play, he's so fast down the line that he's able to pick up quite a few infield hits. Um, taking a look now, his infield hit percentage was about 10% over uh, both of the last couple, you know, full seasons that he's played, which is pretty high. You know, he was one of the I think one of the top guys in baseball as far as collecting infield hits um, and probably one of the fastest right-handed hitters down the line, not named Mike Trout in the <laughs> right. game. Um, that hasn't necessarily translated to his base running quite yet, um, but, you know, you take the good with the bad with him. Uh, and so if you can get, you know, a 280 hitter with a, you know, a fair on-base percentage, he upped his walk rate a little bit in 2015, but it wasn't great. Uh, if he can continue to kind of improve his plate discipline a little bit, I think that even though he doesn't really hit for much power, um, you know, having a de- decent batting average, decent on-base percentage will be a big, big improvement for that. And, uh, you know, a big, uh, just some big-time production from the shortstop spot and at the bottom of the order. You know, I had a little bit of a brain fart, so let me roll back real quick. We were talking about James McCann. And, uh, you know, one of our commenters pointed this out, whether it was today or, or the day before, I don't recall. But uh, we, we were just talking about James McCann and his less-than-stellar pitch-framing skills. 
And someone brought up the point that, hey, his manager is Brad Osmus, who is actually one of the best pitch framers in the business ever since they started recording such data. Wouldn't you think that at some point Osmus would be able to work with McCann and, and you know transfer some of that knowledge that we should see McCann getting better and better as the years go on at doing the pitch framing thing? You would think so, but it's it's tough to say. You know, some of these skills um, are definitely transferable from player to player, and you know, players are able to kind of develop that as they move um, throughout their careers. I think we've seen kind of a tangible impact of JD Martinez, you know, taking batting breakfast next to Miguel Cabrera every day and picking his brain and whatnot, seeing the adjustments that Martinez is being able to make. Um, on the other hand, that you have, you know, stuff like plate discipline. I know that we had a post go up on the site today about Stephen Moya and, you know, his, you know, chances of being a, you know, a good big leader in his career, even though he's still quite young. Um, but one of the main question marks about him is his ability to, you know, kind of recognize certain pitches and lay off stuff in the dirt. And, you know, if he can improve his walk rate even just a little bit, you know, some people think he has a very bright future. Uh, but those skills aren't necessarily things you can teach. It's kind of more of an innate ability. So I'm not really sure where pitch framing falls on that spectrum. I'd want to say probably maybe somewhere in the middle. But, you know, we'll see what kind of impact it can have. Um, you know, if, you know, the Tigers are able to get a little bit more out of that, I think they can make an improvement. But at the same time, I'm still not entirely sold on, the, you know, is the research as far as how important pitch framing really is. Uh, I don't necessarily know that we have such a tangible effect on that yet and it'll be it's kind of one another one of those defensive metrics that we're not entirely sure how reliable it is yet yeah it's it's a good enough point and certainly even if if the metric itself is developed enough that you can sort of trust it the fact is McCann has only been catching for a year uh so you know the jury should be I think still out on on him those that's a pretty small sample size and you're right I, I don't know how much it actually impacts you know, the uh, the game itself. Um, you know, you and I talked a couple days back about this book that I was reading called Scorecasting, and I'll share that for a future episode. But I, I know one of the things they brought up in that book is that umpires seem to be very sensitive to when they know they're being watched. And uh, back when they had implemented camera systems, uh, you know, to start to evaluate umpires and how good they were, and the umpires knew that the cameras were in the, the building, uh, suddenly they started calling the pitches a lot more accurately than they did in other parks. So you kind of wonder if if pitch framing is real and it's a thing and that information is getting back to the umpires, uh, they could certainly be adjusting the way that they're even calling balls and strikes based on who's catching and what they know about their so-called pitch framing skills. So just throwing that out there to kind of muddy the waters even further on a subject that we seem to know very little about. Uh, One last area for me, Rob, I've been knocking this around for days and days. When I think about the Tigers outfield, you know, for a long time, we were just sort of stuck with the idea that it was going to be Ghost and Maven and Collins, and it all seemed very clear that, you know, Ghost was going to play center field and uh, Maven and Collins were going to split time and left. And then we found out that apparently Anthony Ghost is really, really good at playing left field, much better than he is even in center field, and he prefers it out there. But how does this, how do these pieces all fall together if you have Justin Upton set as kind of a fixture in left field? Uh, I looked back at the at the numbers. I don't think Justin Upton has ever played center field, so that's not really a you know an option. He's going to be in one of the corner positions. Do you really see Maben and Ghost being the ones to split time in center? And if that's the case, then doesn't that mean Ghost is really more of a bench player at that point? It could be. Um, you know, we're not really sure what the 
kind of center field playing time split is going to look like yet. Uh, it could be Ghost out there for, you know, most games against right-handers. It could be Maven out there for, you know, 60-70% of the games. We're not really sure. Um, I think that if Maven hits like he did in the first half last year when he put up an OPS, I want to stay close to 800, that he'll be getting most of the playing time out there. You know, he's a good defender, and if he can hit like that, that's, you know, an all-star center fielder, really. Um, but we'll see kind of what that happen, what happens with that. And I don't necessarily know if that's going to be decided in spring training. It may be kind of a fungible thing that goes on throughout the season. You know, maybe Ghost is hitting better at one point. He's getting more playing time. Maybe, you know, maybe it's banged up for a few days and he takes a few days off. Um, but having a couple guys who, you know, at the very least are going to be good defenders out in center field, uh, you know, and still have a little bit of offensive upside, I think that's, I think that's a big, uh, you know, kind of a big thing for the Tigers. Uh, you know, as long as Ghost isn't playing against left-handed pitchers, I think they'll be all right. Okay, of course, then the final question is, and this is, I, I hear this thrown around all the time, Rob, even in some of those, uh, it wasn't the computer projection systems, but it was some of the more, um, you know, like USA Today, that kind of thing, and, and uh, ESPN, some places that were projecting where the Tigers were going to finish. And one of the things that keeps coming up is that lineup is too right-handed and they don't have enough lefties, et cetera. And even some of the Tigers fans say things like this. Now, you know where I stand on this issue. Uh, if you can hit, you can hit. It doesn't matter which side of the plate. And I'm not terribly concerned that, uh, you know, in the midst of all these right-handers, Miguel Cabrera is not left-handed. I think he's going to be just fine. Do you see any cause for concern? Any need to go out and get a quote-unquote left-handed bat? Not at all. Um, I think I was reading something similar today. Uh, it may have been at ESPN, and they were talking about the you know the the Tigers being one of the least platoon heavy lineups in baseball last season, mm. in that they had the platoon advantage and like the fewest percentage of plate appearances. Um, I think them and the Nationals were like two two of the lowest ones last season. Um, and you know ESPN was quick to point out that they were big at the you know some of the biggest disappointments. But then I think the next sentence kind of shoved in the idea that the Blue Jays, the Cardinals, and I forget which other team it was, but it was another one of the top offenses in the game last year were right behind those two teams as far as you know fewest platoon, uh, fewest at bats with the platoon advantage. So um, you know at least for one season, it really didn't seem to make much of a difference. Yeah, and it seems like it really hasn't made that much of a difference even in years past. You know, when you look at teams like the 2013 Tigers and how good they were, it really didn't seem to matter that much of their production... Well, of course, you had Prince Fielder at that point, so there, there was a, your big answer for, you know, where's the left-handed bat? But otherwise, it didn't really seem to matter. They have Victor Martinez now, so... If... Truth. True. No, I don't think it will. I mean, I... just... Would you rather have Tyler Collins or Justin Upton? Uh, yeah. It's not even worth asking that question. It's it's such a ready answer. So I'm saying, chill out, people. It's all good. If they're, they're going to produce from the right side, they're going to produce. It doesn't matter that there's not lefties in there. And if they really, really need a left-handed bat, there's always Tyler Collins, I guess. Anyhow, uh, I think that's just going to about do it for that segment. When we come back from the break, we'll do warming in the pen. The Tigers are armed, but are they dangerous? We'll talk about that after the break. Here's the 2-2. It's in the fly ball, right field. Deep and down the line, and gone! Victor Martinez with a two-run shot. Tigers back on top here in the seventh. They lead it 7-6. All right, it is time for the warming in the pen segment. This is where we're going to kind of continue our uh, season preview. 
and talk about the pitching. Um, let's just start, you know, at the most natural place, Rob. We'll start with the starting rotation and uh, the biggest piece of the starting rotation, I think, anyway. He's got to be Justin Verlander. Uh, do I have this correct that he's already been named the opening day starter? I think I saw that in the Detroit News today that, yeah, Brad Hoffman said it was kind of a no-brainer this year. I don't think he used that exact – I don't think he used that exact word. Calm down, calm down. You son of a bitch. That's not your term. You can't say that. <laughs> um, I But he did say something like, you know, it was a lot easier decision this year, uh, and it should be. Uh, the Verlander was definitely – you know, the should be the opening day starter, uh, and then we'll see kind of what unfolds after him. But, um, well, hold you on, know, he's, he's the ace at the staff. This is the question. You know, my brain doesn't retain these facts the way that it probably should, and maybe this will make a great quiz for the site. You know, can you name the past 10 opening day starters? I know Verlander missed at least one of those. Did he miss two? Did Scherzer get it from him one year and Price get it the next? Or did, no, did Verlander it? got it opening day 2014. Price got it opening day 2015. It was and Verlander was hurt in 2015, so that was part of the reason why. But uh-huh. Price last year broke the streak. Okay, so otherwise he's always had that opening day start. Yeah, it's, it really is no reason not to give that to him. He's uh, definitely the ace of the staff, but Rob, is he any more than just the ace of the staff? Are we looking at a potential Hall of Famer? Well, I think that that's always kind of been the case with him, um, and I think that a lot of that will depend on how he ages through his you know, through his early and mid-30s. Um, so the real question, I guess, is, you know, is he back to being the real Justin Verlander, the guy that we saw, you know, dominate for the better part of a decade and really from 2009 to, you know, 2012, 2013. Um, and I think that he may, may not reach the heights that he got to in 2011 and 2012, but I think he's going to be pretty darn close. Um, you know, as far as guys that need to kind of bounce back in 2016 for the Tigers to contend, Verlander's kind of at the top of my list of guys that I think that are going to be at that level uh, because of what he showed, you know, for a pretty lengthy stretch last season, uh, you know, getting the fastball up to 99 miles an hour um, and being able to shut teams down, even when he didn't necessarily have all that velocity, uh, you know, he's always been, or not always, but he's really kind of evolved into more than just a thrower. Uh, he's really, you know, a pitcher now with four, you know, above average above average to plus pitches. Hmm. Uh, and I think that that is going to bode well for him going forward. You know, he's able to get hitters out even when one or two of those pitches aren't working. And he was able to still work deep in the games last year. So I'm expecting big, big things from him this year. It's, it's really hard not to. I mean, after having seen the way he finished the year last year, he was so dominant for a stretch of, I don't remember, 10, 12, 15 games, it seemed like. He, he was just really, really on. And... You know, we we talked about, you know, in these past couple of years, we've talked about the decline in velocity. And, you know, was Verlander always just kind of a one-trick pony that could get by on throwing 100 miles an hour? And it seems like this year, if I'm not mistaken, we, we did a couple posts on the site throughout the year on the fact that he was really starting to start to locate those pitches better. The fastball might not be coming in at 99 as much as it's more sitting 93, 94 on average, but it seemed like he was locating that pitch so much better and getting the swings and misses and getting the weak contact. And I feel like, you know, if he can do that, uh, wow, sky's the limit then. He, he has evolved to that next level. We're looking at the guy that could be, uh, you know, not just to drop a name, Nolan Ryan, you know, that kind of a guy who can pitch deep into a career and still be very, very effective. I don't know if he's going to necessarily work as far into his career as Nolan Ryan did. Um, 
But I think one of the most important things with Verlander isn't so much that he's able to locate that fastball and locate some of his pitches, but that he's recognized that he doesn't need to throw 100 miles an hour to get hitters out in the later innings, that he's able to, you know, continue to locate. You know, he can ramp up the fastball a little bit if he needs to, but locating that fastball, you know, just at the top of the zone where hitters are going to be enticed to swing at it, but not necessarily be able to hit it, uh, that's going to be important for him. And to, you know, kind of work, you know, work on more of his off-speed pitches and, you know, maybe pitch backwards at some point or, you know, go through the line of one time primarily with a fastball. Then the next time he uses the curveball and then he's using the slider and really able to mix his pitches. I think it's going to be a big thing for him going forward. So you don't think he's uh, susceptible to uh, the Kate Upton effect anymore? I, I mean, if there was ever really a Kate Upton effect... I'm joking. Obviously, there was never a Kate Upton effect. He was he was not well. He was not put together. He had problems. The sir, never mind. Uh, so I should. What? No, no. Just go. <laughs> just get, like, quickly get out of the pit that we are quickly sinking into. Uh, let's talk about the next link in that chain, and that of course is Annabelle. Anibal, not Annabelle, Anibal Sanchez, uh, a guy who, when he is right, can be so freaking good. A guy who, in 2013. Uh, if he had qualified, he, you know, would have won the ERA title through a near no hitter earlier that year. He was just he was electric. And uh, then he had, you know, continual health issues. And I know that's been bothering him for a long time. But it seems like, Rob, it seems like this might be the year. This might be. I just read that article from was it the Detroit News, I think, in an interview that they conducted with Sanchez. And he talked about the fact that he's working out six days a week and focusing mostly on the lower body. Uh, more so than in years past where he had focused on upper body conditioning. And according to his own you know, testimony in the interview, he was saying he felt like it was making a difference that getting his core and you know, lower body right was taking some of the pressure off of, you know, off of his throwing arm. And if that's the case, holy cow, he might actually have a, a full you know, health issue free 2016. We'll see on that, um, you know, with Verlander being kind of, I guess, my lock, if you will, mm-hmm. to really kind of bounce back in 2015 and have a big season. I think Sanchez is kind of the biggest question mark of, you know, all these guys on the can you stay healthy bandwagon. Um, you know, he's had shoulder issues not only in, you know, not only in 2015 and 2014, but really kind of throughout his career. He struggled with it at times uh, in his early part of his career with the Marlins. Um, and has always kind of struggled with, you know, keeping that shoulder healthy and whatnot. Um, and is he necessarily going to be the same guy? You know, his numbers weren't always that great before he came to Detroit. You know, he was good, but not, you know, to an ERA winning, uh, you know, ERA title winning pitcher like he was in 2013. So, you know, can he get back to kind of that level where he was in Florida, where he was kind of like a good number two, number three starter? Yeah, I think so. Um, but I don't necessarily know that we're going to see the near ace that we got in 2013. Uh, I don't necessarily know the Tigers need that, you know, with the kind of the deeper pitching step that they have this year and the other, the other guys they have in this rotation. Uh, it would certainly be nice, but even if he can get back to that, you know, kind of that uh, mode he was in in Florida where he was putting up, you know, an FIP in the, you know, 3.3 range and ERA in the 3.4, 3.5 range. I think that's still, you know, pretty good for the staff. That's incredibly serviceable, especially coming off the year that he had last year. We always say, you know, any improvement over that is is a huge improvement. And the thing that I guess really encouraged me from that interview that he did is he he did specifically talk about where he pinpointed the problems taking place last year, why he was giving up so many home runs. And he said that he was pitching through discomfort, 
you know, in the in the shoulder and the rotator cuff. And he said, you know, my fastball was not sinking at the end like it used to, and my slider was certainly not sinking like it was supposed to. And he just said, everything I threw, they hit it because everything I threw was flat. Nothing was moving the way it was supposed to because he had that, you know, discomfort in the shoulder. So, golly, if, if he's found a way to alleviate the pressure by working on a different, you know, section of his body, the legs and the core and so forth, and if that helps him to find the movement on those pitches, I, I think you got a real good shot at, yeah, like you said, maybe he's not the ERA title winner, you know, that we saw in 2013, but oh, come on, you know, I'll take a couple notches off of that and be extremely happy with it. The next guy in, in the order, then, maybe not they won't pitch in this order necessarily, but the you know the next frontline starter, we've got Jordan Zimmerman, who we signed in this offseason. And one of the things that you know I, I've talked about in the past, Rob, is this kind of question of how a pitcher transitions from the National League to the American League. American League obviously has a much stronger offense because we have this thing called the designated hitter. Y'all should try it out there in the National League. It's really actually quite cool. Uh, so you kind of wonder, coming from the National League, how does the pitcher transition? How does someone like Zimmerman in particular transition? Do the numbers hold steady, or do you see those kind of in flight? I am a little bit worried about Zimmerman's numbers coming over from the National League. Not only did his production kind of take a downturn last year, uh, his ERA went up by a full run uh, compared to 2014. Uh, and his FIP went up by actually more than a run. Um, but also, you know, Zimmerman isn't necessarily a huge strikeout guy. He's not Max Scherzer. Uh, he's not going to strike out 10 batters per nine innings. He's allowing, you know, more balls in play than usual. And with the fundamental differences in the two leagues, you do kind of wonder if that's going to really kind of take a toll on some of his numbers, having to rely on the defense a little bit more. Um, obviously, the Tigers' defense is probably a little bit better than what the Nationals put out last year, but um, he, uh, you know, he's still, you know, having to face a better quality of hitters, you know, deeper lineups and whatnot. So we'll see kind of how he bounces back from that. Yeah, I'm really kind of clinging to a couple of different things. I guess the things that Dan Dickerson, who will be joining us later in the show, the things that he tweeted out after the Zimmerman signing and focusing in on the fact that this is a guy who just pounds the strike zone. And he pounds that strike zone just as good at the same levels, even as some of the ace names that you've you know, become accustomed to, like the Clayton Kershaws and Dallas Keuchel's of the world. Uh, and then the follow up, you know, I think it was I think it was, you know, Saris that, that wrote that piece about how Zimmerman can't seem to complete the strikeout, but he does a really, really good job of getting into two strike counts and just exactly what that does to a, a hitter's batting average, how that average uh, drops significantly once you get to the two strike level. So there's, I think there's some uh, reason for hope there that if he can still continue to pound the zone, even in the American League, hopefully he gets you know similarly good results. But you know it all it all remains to be seen. Uh, I still kind of like like you. I don't think he's as big as a question mark as someone like uh, Sanchez and you know the health issues that are around that. Now we could talk about Mike Pelfrey. We actually could, but we it's, I feel like we we've, we've addressed this on so many previous shows and. I the the one thing one angle I wanted to kind of hit on, on Pelfrey is that I've been noticing a lot of talk, especially with spring training coming up, and uh, we talk about you know what positions are locks and what positions could are still up for grabs depending on how they each player performs during spring training. People are talking about maybe Shane Green being good enough in spring training that he takes the starting rotation role from Pelfrey, and 
you know, I kept looking at that and going, I don't, I don't see that happening. I, I think they signed this guy who's a veteran pitcher to fill a role. I don't think there's any chance of him not making the starting rotation out of the gate. But then I did think, wait a minute, what if Shane Green could be someone who could possibly knock Daniel Norris off, you know, off of that list and take the fifth starter spot? Do you see that as even a remote possibility? I think it's possible, but I think it's going to take, you know, a stellar spring from Green and a pretty awful spring from Norris, um, in particular with, the, you know, like his command and some of the issues that he's had before. And even then, it may still take an injury. Um, Norris pitched, you know, just so well down the stretch, even though the numbers didn't always reflect that, um, you know, taking that no-hitter, or uh, almost two no-hitters, I think, into the fourth and fifth innings, um, and just kind of the, the upside that he has, I think, is a little bit too much to ignore, whereas we're still, you know, really kind of not sure what we have in green. He really struggled throughout most of 2015, and it's kind of a question of whether, you know, how much of that was related to the pseudoaneurysm and <clears throat> and the numbness he was feeling in his fingers. So, you know, could, is spring training long enough for us to really be able to tell, like, this is the Shane Green that we have. This is, we got the good guy, the one that we traded for in 2014. Yeah, it's it's going to be difficult to tell in that short amount of time. But, uh, you know, I, I'm still pretty high on Shane Green. I was very high on that signing when it happened. Uh, I liked some of the things that I saw out of him when he pitched for New York in his, his rookie year for the Yankees. And uh, just what we saw out of him early on in 2015 in April, you know, when people were talking about, oh, he's a candidate for Cy Young. Well, I mean, come on. No, he wasn't. But, you know, he, he was he was throwing well enough to uh, inspire some people to make those comparisons. And I think, hey, there, there's got to be some, some good stuff still there. And I think I just read that quote from Brad Osmus today saying, I don't want people to forget about Green. The stuff that we saw in April, that's still in him. And I think there's there's room for exploration there. We we've talked, like I said, about the Palfrey signing and about uh, you know my opinion on on how I think the good Detroit defense is going to make him look a lot better. Have you have you sort of warmed up to that signing? Maybe a little bit. I think it was a, an important signing for 2016. Um, I've said this before that you know getting a guy like Palfrey, you know, to kind of stabilize that rotation a little bit. You know, if he goes out and you know, if he basically replicates what Alfredo Simon did, maybe hopefully with a little bit of better ERA, that's okay. Um, you know, Simon was bad at times in 2015, but I think the biggest problem that a lot of people had with him is that he led the staff in innings pitched and wins. Um, you know, with everything else crumbling around him, he was, you know, kind of the mediocre guy we expected, and also, the, you know, they had to trade the prospects for him, and that angered people too. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, with with everything else crumbling around him, we were kind of, you know, forced to stare at this, you know, these really kind of terrible numbers. But at the same time, you know, if you get that out of your fifth starter instead of your top starter, that's kind of what you're going for. Right. So. So it remains to be seen what what kind of contributions Pelfrey can make. And I, I made a rather bold prediction. I don't know if it was on the show or if I just commented on the site somewhere, but I, I still think he's uh, he's got a shutout in him somewhere, if not a couple of complete games and uh Anyway, you would have probably not seen that coming from Rick Porcello, and he did it a couple of times in 2014. So this, I mean, Alfredo Simon threw a shutout last year. Just saying. Yeah, that's true. It's like it can happen, and I don't necessarily, you know, expect it 100. percent But it's kind of, that's kind of my like the bar that I'm setting really high for Pelfrey, and I'm going to be excited to watch him pitch and see what what happens. Of course, it I mean, all... I think I think this is a guy that you could still get 30 starts out of. He puts up an ERA around 4.5. Or something like that. That's a that's a serviceable guy. Uh, I guess my I mean 
Oh, you know, all along I've kind of said that. I just don't like the second year. Right. Right. It's always that second year. You know, of course, we've been saying for many, many episodes that, you know, it's it's hard enough to see what 2016 looks like. Who knows what next year looks like? I mean, he may be around. He may not. We may need him around and we may not. Hard to say. Looking forward to, to the 2016 performance, though. Let's quickly review where we stand with the bullpen. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a 180. They got rid of the garbage. They added some great arms. The thing about adding Francisco Rodriguez, and I know we've touched on this in the past, but people still talk about the fact that he's old and is declining, at least in velocity, in terms of velocity. Is this a guy that you really can trust to come out and be a closer and be effective at his job? I mean, people have been counting off K-Rod for a number of years now, and he's kind of evolved as a pitcher. You know, he went from, you know, that fastball slider guy that came up with the Angels to, you know, focusing a little bit more on two-seamer. And now he really kind of threw the change up quite a bit in 2013, I mean, 2014, 2015, when he was so successful with the Brewers. Uh, the question I have is, you know, kind of what's next? You know, he's always kind of hit these little bit of lull periods where he struggled a little bit in between his kind of tinkering to get back to top form. You know, and can he continue to be successful by primarily throwing his changeup? He threw his changeup over 40% of the time last season. And, you know, when you have a pitch like that, I guess it's almost kind of a philosophical question at this point, is that if you're throwing your changeup more than a fastball, is it really a changeup? <laughs> anymore um That's right but at, but at the same time you know if he continues to throw that pitch our hitter's just going to sit on that and is he going to be forced to kind of work off of that pitch a la Al- Al- albuquerque and his you know slider in the fastball in in 2015 so i think you know i obviously you know rodriguez is a much better pitcher than that and i think that he's gonna you know still succeed this year but it, are we going to get the guy that they you know we saw in 2014 uh, in 2015 with the brewers maybe not but I think he's still going to be better than, you know, some of the closing options we've had in the last couple seasons. Yeah, I think there are some big differences there, too. And I like the fact that he's not a two-pitch pitcher, much less a one-pitch pitcher. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, about guys like Jose Valverde, who, you know, he was kind of a two-pitch guy. He had a fastball and he had a sinker, and it worked for him as long as it worked. Now, there's there's brilliant statement right there. It worked as long as it worked. Uh, but once he lost enough velocity off of the splitter that it stopped splitting, he he didn't have a way to rebound from that. He had nowhere else to go, and then he just got beat around. Uh, you could even look at Java Chamberlain kind of the same way. He had a fastball, and he had a breaking ball, and when the breaking ball stopped working, then he was he was toast. I like that K-Rod has options. He's got a fastball. He's got a slider. He's got a changeup. He's, he's shown that he's able to kind of work with, you know, different options. He's willing to drop one pitch and take another one on and find the ones that are effective. And from everything I've heard, uh, that changeup is a really, really good one. So he may have the option of kind of surviving on that for at least another year, but I guess we'll have to wait and see if that's... Uh, who knows? Maybe if the changeup goes south, then he'll find that the slider is working again, and he'll go back to that. Or maybe he'll find a way to make the fastball a good pitch. So who knows? Uh, I, I think what I like about the situation, Rob, is the fact that they have options coming up in the seventh and eighth innings that lead up to K-Rod. I think that was a big problem in years past, not just with closers that couldn't hold leads, but that the middlemen were the guys giving up, you know, kind of bleeding away the lead up until that point and putting the closer in a situation where, hey, now you got to protect a one-run lead and things aren't working out. I like that they have Mark Lowe and Justin Wilson. Do you see these guys as solid, dependable pieces? 
I do. Um, you know, some people may be concerned that they're kind of one-year wonders. Uh, Wilson last year really kind of cut down on his walk rate uh, and, you know, posted a career-high strikeout-to-walk ratio. But he's also, you know, had success even without necessarily the best walk rate in the past. Um, over the last three seasons, he's allowed, you know, something like six, six-and-a-half hits per nine innings. Uh, and that is, you know, while it's not a perfect measure, it really kind of gives you an idea of just how dominant a guy is and how overpowering he can be. You know, Wilson is, you know, hitting you know mid to high 90s with his fastball from the left side, which is a good thing when you can locate it. Uh, when you can locate it, but, you know, he's shown the ability, even without the, you know, the best walk rate in the world, he's still able to get hitters out and really post some great numbers, you know, in three seasons, uh, you know, all with at least 60 innings pitch was, which is kind of the barometer for relievers these days. He only has a 3.05 ERA in the last three years. So I think he's going to be fine. Um, the one that I'm a little bit worried about is Mark Lowe because he really kind of came out of nowhere with such a huge year in 2015. And it really kind of struggled before that. I think he had only thrown something like 15 innings in the previous two seasons combined. And then he comes out and posts an ERA under two in in 2015. But he also showed, you know, a bit more fastball velocity than he had had the last few years. I think that we pointed out that, you know, he had had some sort of injury and wasn't really, you know, you know, pitching up to his capabilities at that point. Uh, but that velocity kind of came back in 2015. And we really saw him take off because of that. It's it's actually Justin Wilson for me, the one that I'm a little more iffy on. I loved the stuff that I saw, you know, from those video clips and the, the you know the electricity on that fastball and the tailing action on that pitch. And uh, it's just that we 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 did that one show right after the signing when we had Tanya on the show from uh, uh, I'm I'm blanking on the site uh, Pinstripe Pinstripe Alley. Thank you. And uh, you know she wasn't as enthusiastic about Justin Wilson and the she's also. She's also comparing him to Andrew Miller and Dylan Batanza. This is true. This is true. Her standards uh, are way up here, and I'm yeah. reaching towards the ceiling right now for those can't see. Ours <laughs> are, you know, down underneath my floorboards. That's it. So we, we've lowered our standards. Different ends of the spectrum here. <laughs> well, we still need the guy to be good. He may be great by our standards, but we still need him to be good by baseball standards. And that's the only one that's kind of a question, I think, you know, yeah. Let's uh, let's see what, what if he can still be that that guy. And I know in, in the Yankee system last year, he was used in many situations, uh, simply in loogie style situations. Um, you know, uh, it may be that we need to see him. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Basically, you know, in a non loogie situation, a non specialist situation, can he hold his own? You know, in that respect. So, no, we've talked about K. Rod Low Wilson. I think we both agree that uh, Alex Wilson. And Blaine Hardy are probably also locks for that bullpen roster. That leaves two spots open. Presumably those spots are going to be fought over in spring training. What's your best guess for who gets the two final spots? Um, You know, it really is kind of just a guess at this point as to who gets those spots. Uh, You know, we've speculated that guys like Bruce Rondone and Drew Verhagen may be kind of front runners for those spots. Um, I'm still a little bit concerned about Rondone as far as the 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 virus that he picked up over the offseason. We talked about how it can cause joint pain and things like that, and it can really kind of linger for a while. So we'll see what he looks like when we get to spring training. Um, So if I had to venture a guess at this point, I'd say my two, you know, uh, the last two guys in the bullpen will be Verhagen and Shane Green. Uh, you know, I've, a lot of people were talking up Green at this point. He's been throwing for a while. I went and looked back, and he started throwing in November. 
So the surgery really didn't limit his off-season preparation, and I think he's going to be okay from that regard. So I guess that those would be kind of my two picks at this point for last couple guys in the bullpen. It's funny. I, w- I probably would have picked those exact same two names, Verhagen and uh, in Green. The only question mark for me is whether whether they're going to want to relegate Green to the bullpen or if they're not going to use him in the starting rotation, whether they would feel more comfortable sending him down uh, to Toledo and letting him work on you know longer innings, uh, bigger stretches of innings, and keep him stretched out as a starter in the event that they might need him You know, when someone like Anibal Sanchez, maybe he does go down to injury and then you need another spot starter. You know, you'd kind of like to have a guy like Shane Green stretched out and ready to go. That's the only, you know, area that I'm kind of scratching my head and saying maybe maybe he doesn't get a bullpen spot, but otherwise, good. Here's here's my thought with it is that, you know, a few years ago we saw Drew Smiley and Rick Porcello kind of go head to head as far as, you know, working for that last rotation spot. You know, both of them pitched very well in spring training uh, and Porcello got the nod and they, you know, brought Smiley up anyway. A lot of people said that, you know, he should be in AAA rotation working on staying stretched out in case the, you know, the team needs him, but he just proved that he was, you know, too good to keep in the minor leagues. Um, and we may see something like that with green, you know, if he's kind of a breakout candidate, maybe, uh, in being in that spot and the tigers may, you know, hopefully they don't necessarily relegate him to long relief to defer large stretches of the year, kind of like smiley was that year. But, it may be that point, you know, kind of one of those uh, instances where Green just kind of forces their hand and says, no, I'm one of your best 12 pitchers in the roster. You know, give me that major league spot. Yeah, and I would be completely okay with that. I just, you know, there's maybe that one little area of saying, I, I'm not sure. Maybe somebody else gets the spot. Look, the only thing that I really care about when it comes down to, hey, who gets these final two spots is this. It's not going to be Ian Kroll. It's not going to be Naftali Feliz. It's not going to be Tom Gorzolani. I'm a happy camper, as long as it's not those guys. Well, let's back up here. Who's kind of the worst reliever on our roster right now? It's kind of uh, a good isn't it? That's a really good question. Um, maybe Rondon? I, I don't know. I mean, he might be. You know, taking a look at the you know the 40-man roster, you got some guys like, you know, uh, you know Jeff Farrell and Jose Valdez and Angel Nesbitt on there. Yeah, so I don't count, count them, guys. but... You know, those are really kind of dark horses to make it, you know, and of all the names that we've mentioned prior to those few, you know, if any of them made the major league roster, wouldn't you be comfortable with them being the last guy in the bullpen? Yeah, exactly. When you say that's that's your last best hope right there. That's the guy that's going to come in primarily and mop up duty when it's already a blowout. Yeah, that feels that feels great. So standards are going up already. Yeah, exactly. All right, let us wrap up this segment. When we come back, we'll go high and tight, and we're going to embarrass ourselves with predictions galore right after the break. The 3-2, a fly ball, center field. This one's deep, going back, Borges at the warning track, looking up, and it's gone! A home run! Amazing. How about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at-bat of the day. All right, and welcome back from the break. We are here in the high and tight segment. It's uh, actually a segment we probably should have called short and sweet because we're just going to get in and get out and talk about our predictions for the season. This is when we get to really make fools of ourselves and uh, go on record, stuff that we should never, ever be getting anywhere near predicting. But we're going to do it anyway. It's time to put ourselves out on the line there. Rob, how many games are the Tigers going to win in 2016? 85. Good God, man. 85. Uh-huh. Yeah. What about you? <laughs> 90. 
maybe 91. I think 90 is, is solid. They might get as high as 91. See, I think that there are, you know, there are a lot of scenarios where the Tigers could win that many games or even more. You know, if everything goes right, this is a 100-win team, easy, if not more. Um, but I think there are just a lot of different things that can go wrong. And this is a, a roster that is just too top-heavy to endure some of that. Uh, you know, if Miguel Cabrera goes down for any stretch, who are you putting at first base? Who's getting those at-bats? Um, you know, you you have some of these situations. We talked about, you know, Cabrera not necessarily being able to stay healthy for a full year. You know, we've worried about Anibal Sanchez being able to, you know, stay healthy for a long time. You know, Jordan Zimmerman's coming over to the American League. Victor Martinez is getting another year older. You know, you have some question marks throughout the back of that lineup. Uh, you know, how is the bullpen, how good is the bullpen really going to be? Um, and I just don't necessarily see them breaking out and really kind of getting back to that <clears throat> back to that 91 mark. Uh, one of the reasons why I really kind of am, I guess, a little bit pessimistic about this is that the Tigers won 74 games last year. So you're already looking at maybe a 15-win improvement out of that, but their Pythagorean win expectation was just 69 wins last season. Um, and so you're looking at almost a 20-win improvement based on the Pythag, and that just doesn't happen a lot. I mean, you had you know that last year with, with the Astros coming out of nowhere, but <clears throat> that was kind of a... You know, something that people had seen coming because they had this great farm system and all these, you know, excellent players coming through. And then you have an unexpected breakout from Dallas Keuchel, of all people. Uh, and with the Tigers, yeah, they had some issues last year. But at the same time, there are still some question marks throughout this roster. And, they, you know, that's just a big, big improvement that they need to come through with in one off season, And I don't necessarily know that they're going to make it all the way to that. I think it's still enough to put them in the wild card conversation, yeah. you know, give or take a, you know, another win or two that could get them in. I just, I, I don't necessarily see this as a 90 win team yet. And see, I, I'm looking at it at, from this respect and saying, I don't think it's that big of an improvement as people might think. I, I'm, I'm taking a look at it and saying, okay, let's take the absolute best case scenario. Best, best case, Miguel Cabrera has an MVP year and maybe wins the Triple Crown. Uh, Justin Verlander, you know, challenges him for the MVP slash Cy Young again. I'm talking like top of the line. Every, everything just goes awesome. J.D. Martinez hits 45 home runs, but Cabrera hits 48 and beats him out. You know, this kind of thing. Yes, then that is a 100, 103-win team. 110-win team. 110-win team. We'll go sky's the limit, right? So let's let's start downgrading from there and saying we already know the, the bottom end of that is 74, 75 wins, but look what it took to get there. You had to have Miggy go bad, uh, V-Mart goes bad, Sanchez goes bad, Verlander's missing for half the year. I mean, a lot of things had to go wrong to get you down to 75. So now if that's if that's your kind of lower and upper ranges let's say you know what does it take to get you down from 100 wins just to 95 well maybe if you lose miggy maybe that's worth three to five wins but you know assuming that zimmerman's good verlander's good sanchez is good vmart's good you know so you see what i'm saying if a couple of things do go wrong throughout the course of the year i think it gets them down to 90 wins to get down to 85 i think a lot of things have to go wrong i think they have to lose miggy they have to lose sanchez probably verlander has to struggle a little bit you know vmart has to struggle I think that's just it's it's more uh, it's longer odds to me to say that many things go wrong that get them all the way down to eighty five wins. 
Another reason why I'm a little bit, I guess, pessimistic about this is that I think the division is going to be a bit better this True. year. True. Um, you know, you have Minnesota improving. They're bringing up more of their talent. You know, guys like Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano are another year older. Um, the Indians are looking a little bit better on paper. Um, you know, we'll see exactly what happens with that lineup. Not necessarily sold that Mike Napoli being their biggest move is going right. to, you know, uh, push them into into contention the white Sox are looking a little bit scary uh with that rotation especially if matt latos comes back and really kind of puts up some good numbers that's a pretty good rotation and they can make some noise there uh and then the royals are the defending champions so i think this is going to be you know one of the one of the toughest divisions from top to bottom and you may get you know another one of those seasons where 88 89 wins gets you the division i tend to think that um it's going to be a tight race only in the respect of uh, looking at the Royals and the Indians and the Tigers, obviously, in that, in that three-team mix. I'm not so sure that the White Sox and uh, Twins are, are going to provide a whole lot of competition for them. I don't necessarily know if they're going to do that either, but I think they're going to be you know, pests in, as far as you know, winning games against the Tigers. I, God, the Twins um, are always that way, aren't they? Right, and that's part of it, too. That's uh, always going to be an issue. It seems like they handle the White Sox fairly well every year. They've handled uh, the Royals fairly well in years past. But yeah, it's you bring up a good point. It's it, the eighty-five wins might be, you know, where they end up or close to it. But that also might be enough to get them close to winning the division. I guess if eighty-eight does it, if eighty-seven does it. Uh, it wouldn't be the strangest thing in the world. But if you're going to peg them for 85 wins, I guess that kind of answers the second question is where do you see them finishing in the AL Central? I'll say second. So who's taking first? Who are they finishing Royals. behind? Royals. Okay. I said that I said that last week. Okay. Yep, you're right. You did. So they're going to finish second to the Royals and then the Indians you think are going to fall into third? Yeah, like 83, 84. Okay. Uh, I'm obviously pegging them to finish first, and I think the Royals will be right behind them, a, a win or two behind them. If I have the Tigers at 90-91 wins, I think the Royals are going to hit 88-89, and it's going to be a mess, and it's going to be awful to witness until the end. You know, when you win, then it's great. Uh, who do you have for Team MVP? And don't say Miguel Cabrera. Um, team MVP, I'd have actually say Justin Upton with this um there are a couple reasons for this for one i don't necessarily know that he's going to you know beat jd martinez and some of the counting stats like home runs and rbis um but as far as a player that makes just a huge impact uh you know kind of in all of the game i think he's going to be a solid defender for them out in left field he may not be as good as you and Cespedes was last year but he's not gonna you know delman young up the joint either um but <clears throat> you know being and hopefully if he's used in that number two spot in the lineup, I think he could be, you know, huge both in, you know, getting on base and scoring runs for the team, as well as driving in runs from, you know, you know Ian Kinsler being on base uh, himself, obviously, being at the plate as a power threat. Um, but some of the guys at the bottom of the lineup, like Anthony Ghost, Jose Iglesias, and being able to kind of turn over that lineup, you know, the number two spot in the lineup has kind of been a little bit of a... A little bit of a trouble spot for the Tigers over the last few years. Um, you know, they've, you know, gotten decent production out of guys like Torrey Hunter, uh, Ian Kinsler when he's been there, um, and some other guys. But at the same time, you know, getting, you know, a hitter like Upton, I don't necessarily want to see him buried in number, you know, six in the lineup uh, when you can, you know, plug him up in number two. And I think he would really succeed there. I would have to go with, and this, I mean, it seems like there's so many players on this team. It's such a good team. There's a lot of players you could easily envision 
you know, claiming that title. J.D. Martinez is one of them. I could see Ian Kinsler having a great year and being that MVP, but I'm going to go with Justin Verlander. Uh, I think what we saw at the end of 2015 is just kind of the beginning of what we're going to see throughout 2016, and uh, I'm, I'm pegging him as, as the MVP, even though I'm not sure that that necessarily happens very often, that they give that to a pitcher, but I, I think he's going to be extremely good. Well, he's done it once. He has done it once. It's, uh, I'm not saying he's going to win you know, American League MVP, but uh, I, I could see him being that for the Tigers. Who is going to be the breakout player of the year? Now, I want to make a distinction. Should we say that that's different from a comeback player of the year? Yes. All right. So give me your breakout player of the year. I think it's going to be Nick Castellanos. Um, you know, I've kind of been on the Castellanos hype train for a while now, but I think that the the improvements that he showed in 2015 are legitimate. Uh, you know, you can't always, t- you know, trust like first half, second half splits as far as that goes. But, you know, the improvement in his plate discipline that uh, Eno, Saros, in, Eno Saris and others have noted, um, just along with, you know, his his age curve. You know, he's turning 24. He's starting to get close to the prime years of his career. This is his third year in the major leagues. I think that he's, you know, poised for a, a good season at the plate. We'll see if that translates to his defense and maybe, you know, some of the defensive struggles he had kind of carried over to the offensive side of the ball and that maybe he was, you know, just kind of pressing a little bit, uh, you know, throughout his first couple years. And, you know, with some more defensive repetitions under his belt, maybe that kind of, you know, kind of has a little Jedi mind trick effect and helps him at the plate. So we'll see, but I think that this is kind of the year that we see the Castellanos that a lot of people, you know, were envisioning when he was in the minors. Well, to the surprise of absolutely no one, I'm going to pick Mike Pelfrey as the breakout player. Uh, And that may seem strange because I know he's not, you know, he's Castellano seems like a a, probably a better chance to do that because he is a younger guy who's coming up on the prime years. Pelfrey's not. Uh, But I I do think that the change in scenery is going to do some amazing things for him. Having the, the good glove work behind him is going to do some amazing things. I'm pegging him to finish the season with an ERA somewhere. Uh, I'm going to give it a range of, like, say, 3.90 to 4.20. And uh, I think it's going to amaze everyone. Um, well, no, it won't. It'll be just one of those quietly great performances that's not going to it's not gonna win a Cy Young, but I'm calling it. Let's, but let's do this, then. Let's talk who's going to be the, the comeback player of the year. Shane Green. Hmm. Well, I mean, you only have like a couple options. Oh, yeah, you do have Victor Martinez. I was so. gonna say you got Victor, you got Miggy, yeah. uh, Shane Green. Well, I don't, I don't necessarily consider Miggy in that because he, you know, he still was putting up a WRC plus of close to one ninety for parts of last season. Um, yeah, but that's he wasn't because... necessarily doing it in the same ways. He wasn't hitting for power, uh, getting on base more than anything. But still, right. I, he was I don't getting on base. He was getting base hits. He hit for average, but he, he didn't hit as many <clears> doubles. He didn't hit as many home runs. I mean, you wouldn't think that if he came back and just slaughtered everybody and hit 45 home runs, that that wouldn't be like considered a massive comeback. Uh, I just don't consider that a comeback. I just okay. Well, he's we'll take him off so the I, list. But you still right. got Sanchez. Well, say, yeah, no, I'd say Victor Martinez. Victor Martinez. Okay. Well, um, well, you, you can't take. I was going to say Vimar, but fine. Uh, then, then I'll I'll say Sanchez. One 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 or both of these guys is going to have enough of a. It's really, it really comes down to this. Who, who's who got farther to go? Who fell the farthest in 2015 so that even a modest improvement looks like it was a huge comeback? And it, it might be V-Mart, sad mm-hmm. to say. All right. Who is going to be the biggest disappointment? 
Annabelle Sanchez. Ouch. Okay. I think, and I, I don't necessarily think it's a performance thing. I think that we're just going to, he's going to get bitten by the injury bug again. You know, shoulders are finicky. Um, you know, working on the lower half is nice, but I, I just don't necessarily know that we're going to get, you know, 150, 180 innings out of him or, or whatnot. I think he's going to hit the disable list a couple of times. This is a tricky question. It really is because it's all about context. It's all it, you can't be a disappointment if people didn't have fairly high expectations of you to begin with. And I thought yeah, about you can't necessarily put like Anthony Ghost as your biggest disappointment. You can't even say Cameron Maben, even though he's new to the group and has that kind of you know novelty shine and you know whatever people are like. Oh, what's he going to do for the Tigers? I don't think anyone really expects him to be you know Superman out there. Uh, and I'm struggling between two options here. I was going to go with. Upton as choice number one because that was the final piece that was a huge signing that was big money the big bat that everyone wanted it would be such a huge letdown if he just performed you know even a little bit below average and you'd say why did they spend all that money for that but I might actually go with Jordan Zimmerman because for some of the same reasons that was a big signing it was the first big starting pitching signing they spent good money on him he's there for the next what five years I think um and as we talked about earlier, he may have some difficulty just this one year transitioning to the American League. I think he'll be good long term, but he might struggle in 2016 enough so that people say that nah, this is not what we were looking for in 2016 from him. It's kind of one of those philosophical things with him. Like, is he going to struggle with this being his first year in the American League or are hitters going to struggle with him because they're not familiar mm-hmm. with his stuff? You know, you get video scouting and whatnot, but a lot of hitters say that, you know, until you really face a guy in the batter's box, you don't necessarily know what to expect. It's true. It's very true. Let's wrap this sucker up with some stupid prop bets. Uh, and I was inspired to, you know, have this idea because of what I saw on one of the uh, sports betting sites, Five Dimes, uh, released wagering odds on who's going to hit the most home runs in the in all of Major League Baseball in 2016. And I'm looking at these numbers going, wow, they've got Giancarlo Stanton at the top at 7-1 to odds. And then from there, it just kind of goes you know, down from there. Uh, you don't get a Tiger on that list until J.D. Martinez at 30-1 to odds and Miguel Cabrera at 32-1. to So in between that, they're, they're looking at Josh Donaldson hitting more home runs than Cabrera or Martinez, um, Nelson Cruz, Nolan Arenado. So I'm looking at this list going, okay, Okay, interesting. What if we play this game, you know, from a purely Tigers standpoint? Uh, let's start with Miguel Cabrera. Total number of home runs that he hits in 2016. I will set the over/under at 35. Uh, under, just under, just under 35. Okay, same question with JD Martinez, uh, but I'm going to set the over/under at 30. Over. Going to go over. Just 30. over. See, so figure these guys are going to end up in the same basic ballpark ha 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 uh, mm-hmm. in terms of their home run totals interesting okay uh i would i'm going to take the over on miggy and also the over on jd on both of those uh number of pitcher wins because that's one of the stats that really really matters i think uh, is how many wins a pitcher gets uh, and uh let's say uh justin verlander and the number is 20 under under interesting all right i'm gonna get bold and say he goes over but not by much 21 seasons are rare these days. I know. I know. I think he's going to have a really good... And here's the thing. I don't think he's going to lose decisions because of the bullpen. 
I think that's going to make the difference. That's going to push him up closer to that 20 win mark. If he misses it, I think it's only going to be by a win or two. Not that it really matters because it's, it's pitcher wins we're talking about, but hey, <laughs> what the hell, you know? Uh, Jose Iglesias, batting average, the over-under is 300. Under. Ooh. By a lot? I think No, I think it'll be close. If you would have said 280, I would have said over. Okay. All right. I, I'm probably going to agree. Uh, but again, it's it's going to be super close. I, I would say somewhere in the 292 to 296 range is what I would see for him. Um, boy, I think that's that's just about all I've got as far as prop bets. Any any prop bets you want to throw out there? Number of saves for K-Rod so, over <laughs> under 35. I mean, really, who cares? It's the I, I know. Uh, 35 is the number? Yep. Yeah, it's, I'll take the over on that. Easy. Easy. I mean, I thought Joe Nathan got pretty close to that, didn't he? Even in 2014. Sure I guess I'd say probably over. Now, if you set it at 40. K-Rod racks up a lot of saves, too. For I don't know if that's like something with other teams or whatnot, but he always tends to really kind of lock those down. So, yeah, I'd say over on that. I might even give him over on the 40. Uh, just because, again, I, I think the starting pitching is going to be good. I think the offense is going to give them plenty of opportunities for the saves. And you all know how Brad Osmus loves to, you know, be married to the roles. So he's going to use K-Rod in the traditional closer role and give him every frickin' save opportunity that arises. Nathan saved 35 games in 2014. See? Wow. And he was bad that year. He blew how many? Seven? Eight? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to look it in. Hold on. i got to look it in. Anyway, yeah. So I would. I might even take K-Rod on the over 40 on that on that bet. Blue, or is it? Yeah, he blew seven saves. Wow, and still saved 35. That's, uh-huh. that's insane. He could have had over 40. All right, if you're listening to this, you think this is a fun idea, then uh, by all means, drop your over-unders, all, all that good stuff on the prop bets, and you know your predictions for Team MVP and Breakout and all that good stuff. Leave it in the comment section uh, on, the, on the post where this podcast lives, and uh, then we can laugh at you for being wrong, too, in seven, eight months or whatever it takes. All right. Let's wrap up High Insight. When we come back from the break, we will take our listener questions in the End of the Mob Scene at Home segment, and uh, we're going to talk about worst-case scenarios right after the break. Swing the fly ball, left field, deep, going back, Cabrera, looking up, and it's gone, a home run! James McCann with the walk-off winner! Number three, rounding third, and into the mob scene at home we go i i love that audio clip i love that that's 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 dan dickerson's thing right into the mob scene at home is anytime that there's a walk-off uh really excited that he's coming up as a special guest in this next segment after this one but man more than that i am looking forward to hearing that phrase shouted at us again throughout 2016 as the tigers rack up walk-off wins like i'm sure they will Let's get to our listener questions. Of course, you can always contact us uh, with these questions. Uh, you can reach us uh, through the website. Um, you can reach us at Twitter at HooksLiveBYB, at uh, BYB Rob, also at Bless You Boys. Uh, there's always the Facebook option, and you can reach us also on Gmail, uh, BYBTigers at gmail.com. First question comes from Ben Friedman at Fried underscore Man 77 on Twitter. It says, player or coach-wise, what do you think would happen if the Tigers bombed again? 
Well, I think it's fairly obvious that if they struggle for another season, that Brad Ausmus will be fired. Um, so, you know, he was almost at that point last season uh, in another subpar year. I think that there's, you know, really kind of no question about that, especially with him in the last year of his contract that he would be gone. Um, so the real question is what happens, you know, with the players. You know, do the Tigers kind of blow it up? Uh, do they start, you know, selling off players for prospects and whatnot? Well, before I you, don't before necessarily... you get to that, let, let, me, let me get your input on that Osmus question real quick, because obviously it's his last contract year. He wouldn't get a renewal if they bombed. Do you think they would go so far as to chop him mid-season? Mm, not necessarily. I mean, maybe if Mike Illich gets a itchy trigger finger, but I don't necessarily know that they have someone like in place that would be, you know, someone that they would want to do so. All right. Let's do that with. So I don't necessarily know he gets fired mid-year, but fair enough. Uh, back back to your player question. Um, well, I guess the question is like, you know, what are the Tigers going to do with the roster if they if they bomb again? You know, do they try to trade guys like Victor Martinez? Um, I mean, not Victor Martinez, J.D. Martinez, uh, before the last year of his contract. Do they try to trade someone like Justin Upton? Uh, you know, you wonder what kind of you know talent they could get for these guys with twenty the twenty seventeen. 2016-2017 offseason being so barren as far as free agents go. I think it's like Steven Strasburg and a bag of Doritos are like the two best free agents on the on the market next year. Now I'm hungry. Thank you. So um, so you wonder kind of how quickly the Tigers could restock their farm system. Uh, the other question with that is, you know, is Mike Illich going to allow that? Or are they still going to kind of reload again for 2017? You know, you have most of this team already under contract for next year. And I think that we've pointed out that, you know, if things do go poorly, it's not necessarily the roster's fault. It's just, you know, various circumstances, injuries and age and whatnot that would be that would uh, kind of get in their way. So, you know, do you just kind of reload again and hope that for the best again in 2017 or do you sell off? Uh, and, you know, it's tough to say. I'm hoping that they don't necessarily get to that point, but we'll see. It's difficult for me to imagine them even getting to that point. Uh, and I know I wrote a post for the site some months ago just detailing how ludicrous and uh, unlikely all of 2015 was. And the likelihood of that happening again is just, it's unthinkable. Uh, but if it were to happen, I guess it really depends, uh, to answer Ben's question, it depends on why it was happening. Uh, if, if they were bombing in 2016, I would have to imagine it's because of injuries, not because players are just really really you know performing poorly like, you know, like for some reason Miguel Cabrera is having a just a garbage year and it's not because of an injury it, it's difficult to envision that happening so I, I guess if they were bombing I'm guessing it's because everyone's hurt again and there would be no reason to blow up the roster you wait till they get healthy and um, you know try and go for it again the next year if, if it's evident that they are not necessarily bombing sitting in last place but if they're still struggling and struggling to get out of you know third, fourth place, and it's obviously because of bad management decisions, bad bullpen decisions, bad pinch hitting, pinch running, whatever decisions, I could see them ditching Brad Osmus in the middle of the season if they felt like there was a chance to quickly climb out of that hole um, you know, and, and get back on track before the end of the season. Tim Babamute says, if Shane Green outpitches Mike Pelfrey in spring training, will he capture the fifth spot in the rotation? We already kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, yeah. um, but I think that it just, you know, it would take so much for him to grab one of those rotation spots. Um, you know, you kind of wonder what the Tigers are going to do with both Green's innings as well as Daniel Norris and um, and Michael Fulmer. 
you know, all these guys are probably looking at something in the neighborhood of, you know, 150, 160 innings over the course of the year. So, you know, maybe the Tigers try to piggyback Green and Norris a little bit uh, in the rotation. Maybe they, you know, do something else creative. Maybe they start Green off in the bullpen and then move him to the rotation or vice versa. It's tough to say, um, and but I think that the starting five is really kind of set at this point, and I think it's going to take, you know, a big, you know, a big change in spring training for anything to change that. Yeah, and I, I kind of hinted at this earlier that I think if Shane Green comes out and is just pitching filthy, filthy stuff and obviously needs to be in the starting rotation, and let's just go ahead and say that, you know, on the other hand, Pelfrey and Norris are both pitching adequately and up to the same level, and there's no clear, uh, you know, winner between the two of them. But hey, I've got to get Green into the rotation somewhere, and one of these two guys has to go. I still say it's they would so much more quickly send Daniel Norris down to Toledo and let him kind of hone his craft further. I mean, the guy is he has yet to throw a full season's worth, you know, um, in the major leagues. So I think he goes to Toledo before Shane Green goes to Toledo, or either of them gets sent to the bullpen. It's that's just how I would see that playing out. Um, it would be a great problem to have, though. I would love to see Shane Green dominate so hard in spring training that they need to make a decision. Do we go with Pelfrey or Norris? That would be that would be awesome. It'd be nice if Green and Norris both dominated and we said, what do we do with Pelfrey? But... Right, right. I mean, I guess at that point you'd have to do put Pelfrey in the bullpen, but I don't know. Uh, Single Digit says, who comes out of spring training as the team's sixth starter? That's a really hard <clears throat> three words to say. Team's sixth starter. In other words, who is the first one called up when someone gets hurt? Um, it's kind of tough to say what exactly happens with Green, but I think that he's kind of that guy in that mold right now. You know, you've already have Brad Ausmus kind of talking about him a little bit, um, and he's kind of been the forgotten man uh, this year. I think that even Single Digit himself forgot about Green when he wrote this question. Um, so I think that Green's the guy. I think that if that injury happens later in the season, you may see the possibility of Michael Fulmer creeping into that spot but i think that if you know an injury happens in april or may we're not necessarily going to see fulmer right away so it would it would probably be green yeah fulmer is an interesting uh you know prospect uh, i meant that not necessarily literally but he is a prospect uh you know we've talked about him on this podcast before and uh i sometimes forget just what kind of a prospect he is even at the, on the national level and their baseball america released a list of their top whatever it was 50 or 100 right-handed pitching prospects in all of baseball and i think fulmer was like number 10 on a list of you know all of major league prospects and i went wow i i keep forgetting he's that level of a prospect that's awesome um so that that's certainly an option as someone who becomes the team's sixth starter but like you said they they have they have so much depth, it seems like, in the starting pitching right now that Shane Green could be that guy. Uh, you know, it could end up being, um, you know, I don't know, Matt Boyd. Uh, there's, there just seems like there's, there's a lot of different options up and coming right now. Um, they haven't even mentioned someone like Buck Farmer. I know Buck Farmer he's is. Be... I don't, I don't know if he's really. We'll see, but yeah, be in that conversation. And of course, Kyle Lobstein's not in the in the picture anymore, but uh, Kyle Ryan still is. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, there's there's just a lot of different choices to go with there. But I would imagine that, if we, as we've said, with the the front five seemingly locked in place, Green would probably be the next most obvious choice if he's not in the bullpen and not stretched out enough to take a, a spot start. Uh, Mister Sunshine, 
I assume that's Mr. Sunshine and not Mrs. Unshine. I'm kidding. Yeah, Mr. Sunshine. It's, it's Mr. Sunshine. But I, I read it as Mrs. Unshine for like the first year after I joined Bless You Boys back in like I think he's been at I think he's been at BYBU longer than us. Yes. Yeah, I was certainly there when I signed on. And it, Correct. I just, I'm just kind of sharing that little tidbit. It's embarrassing that for at least a year, I thought it was Mrs. Unshine until it hit me. I'm like, duh, Mr. Sunshine. Idiot. Uh, says, uh, can you remember an offseason in which so many big name free agents... Ian Desmond, Dexter Fowler, Giovanni Gallardo, Austin Jackson, etc., are still floating around. Obviously, a few of them have the qualifying offer dragging them down. Yeah, we've seen instances in the past where guys go into January and February unsigned, but getting this late into February and this close to spring training, it really is kind of unprecedented. And the funny thing is not all those guys are burdened by the uh, qualifying offer. You know, you get guys like Austin Jackson who, you know, he's coming off of a down year but could still probably earn a major league contract somewhere. Um, and then guys like Dem- Desmond Fowler Gallardo obviously still have the qualifying offer attached to their names. And it really is kind of surprising that some of them have gone unsigned. You know, Fowler is still a very good center fielder and one that I think that many teams would, you know, benefit from giving up their first-round pick for. Um you know, Desmond's coming off of a subpar year, so we'll see what happens with him. But it, it's just kind of surprising that so many teams are really holding on to this first-round pick uh, for you know the kind of players that could really help their roster. Uh, you know, if the Tigers had the need, it would almost be worth it for them to go out and grab one of these guys, hopefully on the cheap. Uh, but they just don't necessarily have any room for anyone at this point. I mean, would you take Ian Desmond over Jose Iglesias? Probably not. Um, you know, Dexter Fowler over center field situation? Probably, but. I think that, you know, they, they have a decent situation already right now with Cameron Maben and Anthony Ghost. Um, it just, it, it's very interesting to see, you know, how teams have kind of evolved in their in their spending ways over the years and how they're prioritizing, you know, uh, prospects and, you know, these young players and cost-controlled players over more expensive free agents who could help them right now. And I will give a much... Shorter answer to that. The basic question was, can you remember an off season when this was the case? And the the short answer is no, I don't. Like you said, there were there were years when like you know Max Scherzer waited until January to finally sign, and he was a big name still out there. And even this year, you know, it took Cespedes quite a while to finally sign. But I don't remember the pool being quite so full uh, this late in the game. So interesting to find out what happens to some of these names. Whether they'll just have to, I don't know, try out or wait until. Well, wasn't uh, wasn't Stephen Drew still unsigned like all the way into June, July, something like that? Yeah, both him and Kendrys Morales went into yeah into that point. But that you know, people kind of saw that all along. They were like, you know, why are you taking or why are you declining the qualifying offer right. and whatnot? I think we're still getting into some of that, although we have seen a couple people accept it this year. So you know, people were kind of blaming the qualifying offer uh, for all this, but I think that it. Um, you know, falls on, you know, the players and the agents just as much as the, the qualifying offer and the rules itself. Yeah, and I, I would say there's obviously a, a marked difference between, say, a Stephen Drew not getting signed and a, a Dexter Fowler, you know, just in terms of production and, and quality. Uh, moving along, Brent Snellgrove asks, the Tigers have rarely signed players from Asia. Kenta Meda and Wei Yin Chen were both available. Is there a cultural issue here? I don't necessarily know that there's a cultural issue. Uh, I think that Chen is a little bit of a different difference, or a little, little bit different than some of the other instances a lot of people are thinking of because 
Wei-Yin Chen was an MLB free agent. He had pitched for the Orioles for, what, three or four seasons already. Uh, and the Tigers just went a different direction when they'd signed Jordan Zimmerman. <clears throat> as far as uh, collecting players from, you know, whether they're amateur or professional players from Asia, um, I think that the Tigers just don't necessarily scout that area very heavily. You know, teams still have somewhat limited resources uh, in, you know, being able to scout players and bring them over to the United States. And the Tigers have focused most of theirs on Latin America uh, and a lot in Venezuela as well. They do quite a work, quite a bit of work in Venezuela, although we'll see what happens with that given the recent, like, political unrest and economic issues that the country's been having. Um, so I don't necessarily know if it's a culture issue. It's just kind of, you know, where the Tigers have prioritized their scouting base over the years. Yeah, I would I would have to agree with what you said there. I can't imagine that there's any kind of a cultural thing going on there. It's probably just a bandwidth issue. The Tigers just have not had a, a lot of depth in terms of scouting, it seems like, over the years. And that's one of the things El Avila addressed as soon as he took over as general manager was adding a few more scouts. And so I, I think if there was ever any real issue there... Um, it had to be a, just an issue of coverage, and I think we would see that change, and probably quickly, if that's the area they intend to begin exploring. Showing Bunt says, the Tigers now have the Tigers' way of doing things. What should be the Tigers' way of base running? I think they should go with, like, giant stop signs at every at every base, especially when guys like Nick Castellanos and Victor Martinez are up. <laughs> uh, they can, like, pop out of the base or something like that, or pop out of the ground. Lord. Um, nice. Or, you know, you got a guy with, you know, when you're playing the White Sox, you could have a guy with binoculars in the uh, in the, in the the stands that will say, you know, stop here or go there or, or what have you. Um, I think that just communication, communication is key. And I think that if the Tigers, you know, they're communicating better and using more signs, like literal signs, not, you know, baseball signs, actual signs. Actual signs. I, I, think, that'll, I think that'll help. Got to simplify it. Well, it's, I mean, it's not a bad place to start because obviously the problems at this point are so fundamental that I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they need. Maybe to install traffic lights, you know, at different uh, junctures in the base path. No, it's yellow, so use discretion. No, it's red. Just stop. <laughs> but I don't know. It, it, you know, in seriousness, um, it's hard to pinpoint even what the problem was. It's certainly not that they lacked speed. They added, you know, speed in some players, but they obviously were not using um their opportunities wisely and just lots of getting getting picked off the bases you know we're getting caught stealing in situations where they probably shouldn't have even been trying to steal we, we heard last year things like um you know rajay davis uh trying to steal a base and then getting scolded later by brad Osmond saying hey didn't you not realize miguel cabrera was up at the plate they were just gonna walk him anyway even if he'd stolen the base oh right yeah should have thought that through and i know that's an issue that both brad Osmond and alavila said that they intend to really hammer home you know just basic base running fundamentals this spring training so little things i guess along the way that um paying attention to the third base coach like you said even if he has to use literal stop signs but just even using common sense you know when is it smart to take that extra base and go first to third when is it smart to go ahead and try and score from second being aware of the game situations that that kind of thing and it's probably going to take longer than just uh, you know a spring training period to fix all of it, but hopefully we see them come out of the gate in April with marked improvement. Last question. iPhones are garbage, says. What order will our top three starters go to begin the year? Justin Verlander starts opening day, but who goes after that? 
Um, this is kind of just a guess at this point, but I think that Jordan Zimmerman will will be the second starter. Uh, the Tigers open the season with a two-game series in Miami. Uh, they're not actually playing on baseball's opening day. Their opening night is the next night later, and you will get what we presume is Jose Fernandez against Justin Verlander, nice. which should be a lot of fun. Um, and then I think you'll see Zimmerman pitch against the Marlins after that. Um, I don't think there's necessarily any, you know, specific reason for it. It's not like a matchup thing or, or whatnot. Um, I think they'll just see, you know, you'll get Zimmerman doing that. And then the Tigers have an off day. And so what that allows them to do is, or no, uh, actually I read that wrong when I was talking about that earlier today. So, um, they have an off day, but then they have a home opener against the Yankees. So, you know, it may come down to whether Brad Osmus wants to use Sanchez or Zimmerman uh, in that home opener against the Yankees. And, you know, I think that, you know, Zimmerman's kind of the guy who doesn't necessarily seem to care about that stuff. So I think that Osmus will use him against the Marlins and maybe, you know, push Sanchez into that start against the Yankees. It makes as much sense as anything, really, because I, I don't know that there's uh, there is some status, you know, obviously that goes with who gets the opening day ball. And I'm not sure that that necessarily exists beyond opening data. Who goes second versus third? You could make a case for either Zimmerman or Sanchez, you know, being comparably good pitchers. You know, maybe Sanchez gets the nod because he's got tenure. Uh, Maybe not. I don't think it really necessarily matters. You might, you know, if there's anything to what we talked about earlier and saying that Zimmerman may decline slightly against the American League for a little while, then maybe it makes sense to use him against the Marlins and go ahead and let Sanchez open against the American League with the Yankees, but do they think? Ooh, do, one thing I just thought of. Yeah. Do you think he uses Zimmerman because he's been hitting more recently? Well, there's a really good. Do you think Brad Osmus thinks that deeply into the strategy? Maybe. Okay, that's giving him some credit. Um, but that would be a very good point to take. I don't know what kind of hitter. I don't know what kind of hitter Zimmerman is, but if he's if he's a better hitter than Sanchez, I mean he's probably better than Sanchez. Have we ever seen Sanchez take a swing? Yes, we have. He did against the Dodgers. It wasn't this last year? It was 2014. But he hit a like a double off of one of the Dodgers pitchers. It was really yeah. It was insane. I don't remember that one. I remember Max Scherzer's double off of uh, Matt Harvey. There was that too. But yeah, Sanchez took one up into like the right center gap at Dodger Stadium. It might not have been Dodger Stadium, but he definitely did it. And I thought, holy cow, that guy can. But he pitched in the National League for a while. so he... Yeah, but it's still been a while. It's true. But apparently he can hit a little bit. I guess we'll find out. All right, that is going to do it for our Into the Mob Scene at Home segment. Again, thanks for all the questions. We love to take on these uh, little challenges and see what kind of answers we can come up with. And uh, so we'll wrap that up for now. When we come back, uh, finish out the show with our seventh inning Kvetch, and Dan Dickerson will join us to talk about baseball and all the good things that we have to expect when we get back from the break. Three now. Here's the 2-2. Oh, boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh, and Victor got tossed. Wow. And welcome back for the break. We're ready to wrap up this show with the seventh inning Kvetch. As you know, this is the portion of the show that we sometimes reserve for special guests and interviews. And we do have a special guest with us today. Dan Dickerson joins us for this segment. Of course, you know Dan as the play-by-play announcer on the Detroit Tigers radio network, the voice of summer. Dan, it is truly a pleasure to have you back on the show. Well, I appreciate you having me back. I always like talking baseball with you guys. 
You hear that, Rob? That's Dan Dickerson's voice. That sounds like baseball to me. Sounds like spring to me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, well let's, let's jump right in with the hard questions. Uh, let's just go right to the numbers. Uh, most recently, <laughs> Baseball Prospectus released their uh, Pakota projections today. And uh, they, along with other systems, have the Tigers finishing lower than, well, lower than I expected. They had them finishing in third place with a 79 wins. That's all. Uh, do you agree with these systems, Dan, these projections that are coming out, or do you think the Tigers are primed for bigger and better things? Funny, I was just having a discussion with this with, with somebody else about projection systems because uh, exactly what you're talking about. They're all, all the projection systems are coming out, started with fan graphs, kind of below 500. Uh, Sports Illustrated ranked their 30 major league teams from 30 to 1 in their most recent issue and had the Tigers at 16, and uh, ESPN ranked their 30 to 1, and they're at 19. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, everybody's kind of got them in that same at 500 or below. And the thing that, when I look at projection systems, I mean, they're all kind of the same, and they all have a sameness to them because they're all looking at a player's career, recent history, age, health, and and you understand how, how they end up kind of being the same. And to me, the fun is, because we all like to figure this out, right? We all like to project. We all like to, especially if we're Tiger fans, whatever fan you are. But I, I like trying to figure it out. So I've just been looking in recent days. What What is the upside for this team? And you look at what's the possibility? What, what's been the highest? I just I like to look at war because I truly believe if you can figure out what a player's war is, and you can do that for a whole team, good luck doing it. But if you can, mm. you'll have a pretty good feat feel for where they're going to end up with total wins. Now, if you look at the upside for all of these Tigers players and where they've hit in their careers, I mean, Miguel Cabrera has been a seven-war player. Ian Kendall has been a five-war player for three years running now, five-war plus. Upton is a, you know, three-and-a-half to four-war. Zimmerman, four-war. I mean, there is talent on this team. So you get then get into the what-ifs. And to me, the biggest ifs are Anibal Sanchez, Victor Martinez, health and getting back to productivity for both. Uh, and then there are some other, you know, is the bullpen as good as we think it is? So I think it's fun because I don't think projection systems can account for guys coming back from injury. I don't think they can account for a guy like J.D. Martinez who's changed his swing two years ago at age 26 and turned into a monster hitter. Um, and I don't think they can sometimes take into account motivation, intangibles, uh, Kansas City is a great example. They, I think the projection systems have missed to the tune of 30-some wins for both Pittsburgh and KC in recent years hmm. because you, sometimes you just can't, you can't predict how a team and the pieces are going to fit together. It's a fun exercise, but the way the pieces fit, the chemistry, there is something to that. Ask anybody. Um, and there are just so many little things that can and can't go right. And it all adds up. So I don't know. I, I took a stab at it the other day. I came up with a rough number. It seemed a little bit high, and but it, it's fun to try. It's fun to try to figure it out. I think the projection systems in the Tigers' case are low. I really do. I think they're. Uh, I don't think they're taking into account Miguel Cabrera, Justin Verlander coming back strong. You know, guys who are on Hall of Fame career tracks tend to age better through their 30s than other guys. And those two were on Hall of Fame career tracks until and Miguel still is until injuries. 
So, I don't know. It, it's fun to figure it out, but I think they're missing some things with this Tiger team, and I do think the upside is absolutely there for a 90-win season. So you're calling 90 wins? Yeah, I was at uh, roughly, I mean, I did. I tried to figure out the war for each player. Right. Yeah. You know, you add it to 48, and that's kind of the basic formula, and I came up with 92. The one thing I will say, the Tigers gave up 803 runs. If you're going to get to, let's just call it 90 wins, you've got to outscore your opponents by roughly 70, 75 runs. They gave up 800 runs last year. Mm -hmm. Nobody else was close in the American League. That number has to drop to closer to 700, and that's a big change in one year it's a big improvement i think it's possible but that was the one thing that i, I keep getting back to that makes me maybe a little more cautious in other words I, we have to see it to believe it i mean they they have to cut that number in a dramatic way this year they have the capability to do that so i'll, I'll stick with right around 90 i mean that's optimistic but i'm an optimist by nature but i do think the talent is there to get there i think sometimes you project 90 wins and that you're just absolutely counting on every best-case scenario for every player to get there. That's not the case of this team. Now, Dan, you had mentioned Jordan Zimmerman as kind of one of the pieces that could help the Tigers cut down on those 800 so 800 or so runs that they allowed last year. Um, but I want to—I kind of want to put you on the spot here. What do you think was the, the Tigers' best move of the offseason? I, I think one of the underrated moves, and just, I mean, just for shoring up the bullpen purposes, was picking up Justin Wilson. I don't think that's the key move, but... I mean, to get a power arm to the left side who, I mean, he cut his walk rate sharply last year while maintaining his strikeout and inning dominates lefties and righties. That's a great pickup for relative low cost, and it could be a huge piece of the bullpen. So, to me, that's an underrated, very important move. Of all the moves that they made, that's a good question. I just think that the, the targeting guys and getting what you, you had a checklist of things to do, a to-do list, and he went out and got it done, but Building up the back end of the bullpen to me is number one because I think the offensive pieces were there for the most part, adding up, and it's really nice. But I really do believe without him they still could have had a very good offense uh, with return to health and power, especially for Cabrera. Um, but to build that back into the bullpen, if, if it really truly does pan out that you've got Lowe, Wilson, and K-Rod lining up in inning seven, eight, and nine, and you can bring them in at the start of an inning like Casey does with all their relievers. It seems like they're always coming in, bases <laughs> empty to start an inning, and they all go one inning at a time. It's amazing right. how often they do that. If you can get to some kind of consistency like that, the bullpen depth all of a sudden now allows Hardy and Wilson to thrive in roles. Wilson's really good in multiple inning roles. Talk about Alex Wilson. Uh, and, and you've got, I think, a couple of other pieces that can fit in nicely. But if it, if it, Early in the year, for fans to look at, to me, if it's starting to line up that way, low Wilson and K-Rod or Wilson low K-Rod, uh, you're, you're really going to, I think that makes it, it changes everything on this pitching staff in terms of the feel in the late innings, the confidence that a team has knowing they're shortening games. Because, you know, Jordan Zimmerman, a great pickup, he's really a six-inning guy. Sanchez is really a six-inning guy. And it just puts all the more importance on, and I think Daniel Norris would be kind of a six-inning guy at this point in his career. And I think that puts all the more importance on those guys at the back end. Well, I certainly think the bullpen could uh, almost, a better bullpen could almost shave off those hundred runs that you were talking about all by themselves. It, it really can. I mean, we've seen some amazing, I mean, I'm not sure what Kansas City has done is <laughs> not many are going to replicate that. But other teams have put an emphasis on the bullpen and, and targeted 
the right guys. Uh, you still need those swing and miss guys, and the Tigers did not have a lot of those guys last year. Now they've got swing and miss guys. And it, you're right, it can it can change it can change the feel in a big way, and it can help cut that big number down in, in a hurry. Now, I know you were on Twitter uh, when the Jordan Zimmerman signing took place, and you were obviously very high in the Zimmerman signing. You had some things to say about that from the statistical point of view. I wanted to probe just a little bit deeper and ask specifically about the Mike Pelfrey signing. Rob and I are having kind of a disagreement on this. I know I'm a lot higher on Pelfrey than some others are. I just think he uh, has a real chance to break out with a better infield defense behind him, but I wanted to get your opinion on that. Going into the postseason, I thought that Pelfrey was the guy, I, I, I've become convinced that to build a bullpen, you target hard-throwing former starters who maybe didn't have much success. Because if you really look at the best relievers, uh, the Wade, you know, Wade Davis, Luke Hochaver, um, you can kind of go right down the list of some of the very best relievers are former, quote-unquote, failed starters, uh, whether it was in the minor leagues or major leagues, but especially major leagues. And they, they come out of the bullpen throwing harder. We saw Pelfrey twice. I think there were two seven strikeout games against the Tigers. This is a I'm not usually big on low strikeout guys, but what we saw in those two games against the Tigers was power stuff, 94, 95, and swings and misses, which he apparently doesn't do against many other teams. And I know the Tigers have hit him hard as well, but it intrigued me. I thought maybe this is a guy, you put him in the bullpen. You know, McAllister, Zach McAllister is another guy out of the bullpen now for Cleveland. Guys who throw hard and can come in and let it fly. I thought Pelfrey might make a perfect reliever. As a starter, I wasn't as excited, I'll be honest. But the fact that his fastball was as good as it's been in a long time, and there there is a power arm, and that intrigues you because you think if he can get the strikeouts to five and a half, six, then I think you really you've got something there because there is a durability factor. There, there's value in having those innings, but he has to get the strikeouts up. I don't think there's any question about that. All right, so we kind of talked about the starters, a little bit about the bullpen. We talked just briefly about the offense. Where do you feel like is the weakest link on this on this Tigers roster, and do they have enough depth in their farm system to help supplement the club if they need to, or do they have to look outside the organization for help at some point? And that's one of the reasons I thought maybe you know, before they signed Justin Upton that they probably wouldn't to give them some flexibility at the trade deadline if need be. Uh, and I think that'll be harder to do if you've got a $200 million payroll. And then again, Mr. Ellis has made it clear that he's ready to spend whatever it takes uh, to win if he thinks he's, he's adding a piece that's going to do that. Um, I would say, and I, I've looked at it a lot, and I, I think the lineup to me will be, I, I think there should be a top, three offense because last year it was first batting average, second and on base, fifth and slugging, 10th and run scored vastly underperforming. When, if you're top five in those three categories, one, two, and five in the big three category, you should be a top three offense. And that was with injuries to Miguel who fell off the 18 home runs and V Mart especially. But I do look at that lineup. It's up and hit second. You do, but there are definitely question marks at six, seven, eight, and nine. And that means, James McCann, Nick Castellanos have to improve this year. And young hitters can, you know, they can struggle at age 24, 25, second year, full year in the major leagues. So I would, uh, and that's why I think Upton some days will hit six, just to lengthen that lineup a little bit. I do think this is a very good offense. But I just, when you look at the lineup, when you see Kinsler, Upton, Cabrera, V-Mart, J.D. Martinez, one through five, 
the, the bottom part does give you pause a little bit. But I, overall, I think it's going to be a very good offense. I think Sanchez, to me, is a key in the rotation because if he struggles again, then I think there are real concerns about the rotation. If he's really good, I think Daniel Norris slots it really nicely. He'll be listed as the fifth starter, but really he's got could be the fourth guy, I think, because his talent is the upside is really high with Daniel Norris. Uh, and But I, I, that's why I think Sanchez is so important. Now you've got one, two, three lined up really well, and uh, and the, the depth there, I mean, it's, I think pretty solid one through five. And then the bullpen, it just, I do think that's probably where they have the most depth in the farm system. I really do, because I think Michael Fulmer could help some point during the season. A lot of teams in the past, we haven't seen as much recently, bring up you know, future starters and work them out of the bullpen for half a season. They can make a huge impact. I think Fulmer could based on the reports you hear of the power arm and the slider that he has, I think Shane Green could be a big piece out of the bullpen, assuming that we see the 2014 Shane Green and not the guy last year. The guy we saw last year was not the same guy as 2014 when he had, at times, electric swing and miss stuff. And that's why I think out of the bullpen, Shane Green might be really good and really important because he can go multiple innings. And who knows, maybe even slots back into the rotation at some point if he's got that good health and he's got the good swing and miss stuff going out of the bullpen. So, I, I mean, if there's one area, I'd probably say the bullpen, because until you see the day-to-day and it, are they performing at the level that the team needs to be a contender in a 90-win team. And the one other thing I would mention, guys, and I, I don't think this is a small thing, base running has to be a lot better. And hmm. not just a little bit. Their base running was atrocious last yeah. year. Yeah. And it's not all about how much raw team speed you have. It's also just that, that knowledge and the ability to be smart when you take the extra base, but they made slight improvements in 2014 in every way they fell back in 2015, whether it's taking the extra base, running into outs, grounding into double plays they don't worry about because that, that's going to happen. But, but the outs they made, the, the inability to take an extra base going first to third and second to home, uh, abysmal at the bottom of the league. They were not a good base dealing team either, even though they finished, I think, fifth stolen bases. So, I mean, by any measure, whether it's the Bill James handbook, whether it's just looking at the baseball reference, base running stats, they were at the very bottom in the American League. And that costs you wins. It's not by accident that Texas was at the very top. They surprised everybody by getting to what was it, 87 or 88 wins. Kansas City is consistently at the top year after year, consistently outperforms what people expect them to do. It's things like that that can help you get those extra wins. But when you're as bad as the Tigers were, that cost them, I, I don't know, several wins, you would think, last year, as far below average as they were with their base run. Now, let's back up a little bit here, kind of away from the diamond. Um, when Al Avila was hired, he vowed to bring more statistical analysis into the front office. Uh, have you noticed any differences so far in how he operates, uh, particularly from a statistical standpoint, than Dave Dombrowski did when he was in charge of the Tigers here? Not yet. I just I thought it was so significant that the first major pronouncement he made about how he's going to run things was, here's a guy from a scouting background, from a scouting family, for goodness sakes, uh, who is one of the very best at scouting. And his first emphasis was on, we have to, we have a lot of catching up to do, I think were his words, in the analytics area. Uh, I haven't seen a whole lot in terms of how they're doing it yet, but just the fact that he's putting an emphasis on it, realizing the importance of it, you know, talking with Sam Menzen, who is now joined by 
about three more additions uh, to the to the office. Jay Santori and Andrew Koo. I think they have an intern uh, who has also joined them. I mean, we're talking about. I was just struck reading the book Big Data Baseball, which is a, a, a fascinating read about the Pittsburgh Pirates' use of analytics to turn things around on a low budget, by the way, after 20 straight losing seasons. And the number of, uh, like, you know, the data points that people all have to look at, and Sam was saying it's, you know, it's in the billions. It's literally in the billions of bits of information that you are now getting. So the teams that can figure out, you know, the, the formulas, the algorithms, how to best use that to their advantage are the ones that maybe that's the next advantage because everybody's got the same information for the most part. Now, how do you use that? So to put an emphasis on that is huge. I haven't seen a ton of, you know, how they're going to use it. I believe, you know, Al and Brad Austin have both said it's more about how you put the pieces together to build a team. But let's face it, Pittsburgh used it to be way ahead of the curve in use of defensive shifts, and, and they changed the way their pitchers, you know, pitched so that they would have more ground ball pitchers with the shifts that they were using. And that was a huge change for them. So they use it to the, the game in and game out strategy. The Chicago Cubs have used analytics. I had a very interesting talk with Chris Basio last summer, the pitching coach for the Cubs, about the guys. And look what they've done with Jason Hamill. Uh, modest success, if at all, with Baltimore. Uh, look what they've done with Jake Arrieta, who had middling to below average numbers with Baltimore before the Cubs got a hold of them. Even Pedro Stroke. Uh, look what they've done with guys who just had middling to no success in other organizations. But they target guys who, you know, have, have certain, you know, they're using the, the data to find those guys with high spin rates who can pitch up and down in the strike zone rather than side to side. And they use the analytics to target certain types of pitchers who will pitch to their philosophy. But they also marry it with the scouting to make sure they're getting guys who are, you know, amenable to coaching and are able to change their ways and buy into what they're trying to do. And I think that's what the Tigers are trying to do. Use the analytics, figure out all this data is coming in. How do you best put it to use in roster construction, but also the game-to-game, and then marry it with the scouting because that's still going to be a big part of what you do. The Tigers love Jordan Zimmerman because he's a really good pitcher, but also for the person that he is, and that does make a difference. You know, it's funny you bring up that book, Big Data. I know both Rob and I just recently read that over the last couple of months. And when I was reading it's it, good, isn't it? I was Dan. I, I was salivating as I'm reading these. You know, this <laughs> story of how they managed to bring big data in and how they synchronized that with not only the players but the coaches. And they had the coaches sitting in yeah, with the analysts. Yeah, a lot and, of resistance. Yes, but the way that they were able to it. to smooth that out with communication. And so yeah. now, now I'm kind of curious. Now knowing that you've read that. Uh, what popped into your head as you were reading that? Because I know for me, there were several points I'd reading and thinking, oh, wow, if the Tigers could only fill in the blank, you kind of want to apply that to, to the team. What what popped into your head as you were reading that book? I, I think what you just mentioned, that, you know, Clint Hurdle, a fascinating guy. I, I've gotten to know him a little bit because we play Pittsburgh every year. I love talking to him. But just the fact that he they knew they had to do something dramatic and the fact that he made sure that everybody – these guys are going to be in the clubhouse. But the, the, the key was they weren't just dictating to the players and coaches, but that because they were now in the clubhouse and a familiar face, the guys knew who they were, that they could say, okay, that's a good idea in general, but for this particular guy, 
whatever it might be that they were trying to do, maybe we shouldn't either shift or maybe we shouldn't have this guy pitching this way because that's not his strength. In other words, bringing up points that the, the analytics guys didn't know because they weren't looking at the scouting side but more the numbers side, and that constant communication that you just mentioned, I think that struck me, and it just seems like if you're going to do it, you have to have that. And uh, and that, that's what kind of stood out to me. Indeed, indeed. I'm hoping that the Tigers can pull off something very similar as they begin to kind of assimilate you know, big data into their own organization. Uh, Dan, as we start to wrap things up here, a um, couple final questions here. This one's kind of a, it's a softball for you. Who do you think is the Tigers' biggest threat right now in the AL Central? You know, I wanted to say the Tigers were the favorite over KC, but I look at KC and I think, you know what, they're the favorite for a reason. I mean, that what they've done, you know, their last two postseason runs are so fun to watch. Uh, they, they've got something good going out there. They're outperforming what people expect. They're outperforming their expected one loss. Uh, they're outperforming performing projections. Uh, they, they've got something that, uh, you know, another book that I'm recommending to anybody because I think it dovetails so beautifully with big data is called Intangible by Lonnie Wheeler. It's a really good read about the other side, the intangible side that we debate, but the examples that he brings up about you can't deny the impact that, and he goes through story after story, you know, a veteran has on a rookie, that mentor has on another player to help them learn the ways of being a big leaguer or learn the ways of playing a position uh, or, or the character, a guy that joins a club, uh, you know, the Johnny Gomes of the world uh, who, who adds something every year. I mean, it, it's a it's a great read, and, it's a, and it dovetails to me really nicely with big data because they're always going to be that, the other side, and Joe Madden, there's a long chapter in there with his quotes about the importance that he attached to the character side, the chemistry side, the intangible side that is quite real in his in his view. And so, I mean, there are those, those that's why Kansas City to me is a team to beat. They've clearly hit on something. I think it's one of those things where the end result is more than the individuals. If you just look at them and say, well, that's about an 85-win team, clearly – you know, you win 95 games because they do so many things right, but they play that team concept very well, and they've got guys who mesh very well. There's, there's something to be said for that. So KC to me, they re-signed Gordon. Kennedy to me was a good signing for KC. Now, their rotation was 12th last year in the American League. I think the Tigers rotation is better, but their base running is superior. Their defense is top-notch. Their bullpen is as good as it gets, uh, and their lineup is good enough especially with Gordon coming back. And that's why they're the team to beat. I think the Tigers can absolutely hang with them, but until they show that they can overtake them, Kansas City is the team to beat. And then I would put probably Cleveland next. I think the Tigers are better than Cleveland because I think they have more overall depth. I think Minnesota is intriguing, but I still think that rotation is full of holes. And I think Chicago just has way too many holes uh, offensively. And that's why I would pick them probably fifth if you had to pick somebody fifth. Well, so then I will look forward to a dogfight between the Detroit Tigers and the Kansas City Royals. With I'm going to give the slight advantage to the Tigers in that one, just because I kind of have to say that running a Tigers podcast and being the optimist that I am, <laughs> I, can't, I can't be doom and hey, gloom. Hey, we can't be optimistic now. When can we be? Right? Exactly. This is exactly my point, Dan. Save the doom and the gloom for at least uh, May, May, second April. Second week of April. Okay, <laughs> right. Right. Second week of April is a better time for it. No, because second week of April, that's usually when they rattle off about ten wins in a row and everyone declares them to be that's, pennant champions. That's right. 
So, yeah, eleven and two, uh, they were going to run away with it last year. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Dan, this is—it sounds a little strange to say, but it, it, we're talking about two weeks from today. You're going to be in in Florida and actually calling a, a spring training game. Are you yeah. looking forward to it? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I I love the start of a baseball season. I mean, I really do. I, I like all the there's so so much good writing out there. I like trying to figure out who's got what. And to me, there's really no. Uh, one team in the American League that scares you. I think it's so. It's, the race is so wide open. And the other thing you look forward. I mean, there's a lot of good young talent coming into the game right now, and that that makes for a lot of excitement. So I think there are some intriguing young players. I mean, that's what spring is for, just to get a look at some of these young players. And believe me, we get to see a lot of them because the regulars are usually gone by the fifth or sixth inning, right. and even sooner than that, early in the spring. Uh, you know, the games. Let's face it, the games sometimes are double-A guys and A-ball guys at the very end, but right. I love the start of a baseball season. I'm really interested to see how this team, the pieces come together. There aren't a lot of camp battles, but, you know, to watch Daniel Norris battle, I think he's the clear favorite, but I'm looking forward to seeing Michael Fulmer. I'm looking forward to mm. seeing, don't forget about Matt Boyd. I think this kid's got some, some real upside. I know he doesn't grade out really highly, but he showed me some things. As bad as the numbers might look on paper, there's there's something there in that left arm of, of Matt Boyd. I'm looking forward to seeing Shane Green. Yes. Because he had electric stuff. Look at the quotes from Brandon McCarthy, his teammate with the Yankees in 14. He said, stupid electric stuff, I think is what he called it. That's right. Uh, mm-hmm. We didn't see that last year. Even in the good start, we did not see the swing and miss stuff. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. And uh, the development of guys like you know, Drew Verhagen and Nick Castellanos. I, I'm intrigued. I don't know if Nick Castellanos is a... 1664 guy or a 2585 guy but he's 24 he's not even 24 yet and i do think it's in i mean he's got big time power and he's got the right approach meaning he uses the big part of the field in right center so i mean there's just there's a lot to look forward to and uh i, I like i said I, I love getting started well we are certainly looking forward to being able to finally tune in even if it is just for spring training but being able to tune into the radio and <laughs> Listen to you and, and Jim Price, of course, you know, and the sounds of baseball again. It's just, it's been a very long winter. So one, one quick final question before we hang up. Yeah. Uh, now that you've had some time and distance to get away from that mess that was 2015, there, <laughs> there were some moments there I thought that were, you know, you, had, you got to watch Miguel Cabrera hit career home run number 400. You got to see James yeah. McCann hit an inside the park home run. What was your kind of favorite moment that you got to witness in that very ugly season? You really hit on two of them, but the, the Cabrera one was so good because it was his first shot at it. The rain was coming down. Right. I remember right, they might have even they might have even pulled the tarp shortly after that. I think they did. Maybe that was in Cincinnati, but it wasn't Cincinnati. But I mean, the rain's coming down. First crack at it, and he hits four hundred mm. straight away center. Of course, of course, uh, that was a beautiful moment. Um, McCann inside the parker, I can remember it very vividly because it just took that kick and hugged the wall in right center field and allowed him to circle the bases. And it's always fun when you say, they're waving him home. Right, right. <laughs> the old George Cal, they're waving him home. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, those were two. I mean, and you know, I, 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 to watch Justin Verlander, you know, dial it up and come back as strong as he did and, uh, you know, hit 99 on the gun and in one outing toward the end. I mean, that was... It was just fun to watch him start to start. Daniel Norris's home run in Chicago. Those two games in Chicago were a blast. Mm. I mean, I don't know what goes on with the Tigers at Wrigley, but if you look at their last three series there, it's just ridiculous. I mean, they, yeah. <laughs> that's a good Cubs team, and they just destroyed them over two <laughs> days. And Daniel Norris's home run 
also to straightaway center was, I, I don't think I've seen a Tiger pitcher hit a home run. As a matter of fact, I know I haven't. And he just bombed that ball to straightaway center. And then, of course, went out with the oblique. But to watch him come back from that oblique in September, it makes him really, you know, it was, what, a three-inning, a four-inning, and a five-inning start. But, I mean, over the course of two games, he retired 26 out of 27 batters. Uh, you know, they're taking it easy on the innings because of the oblique. But, um, I mean, that was exciting because you realize the upside with Daniel Norris is very high. And that kind of got you excited for this year. I mean, those are just some of the things off the top of my head. But um, there, there definitely were some highlights. And I think, you know, in a 74-win season, that was so disappointing. That that was uh, – those were some of them. I think the day-to-day consistency of Ian Kinsler is something that kind of gets overlooked. It's not really a highlight. But just, I mean, look at the the years that Kinsler's had with Detroit. He has been under the radar a little bit because the numbers aren't eye-popping, but all he does is go out and play hard every day and play really well. And uh, that's another reason why this team could be really good in 2016. Well, I tell you, not, not only uh, do I not remember a Tigers pitcher hitting a home run before, the, the last one I remember even hearing about was Mickey Lolich. Back in the late 60s. So maybe uh, one of these days we'll get your partner, Jim Price, on the show and he can tell us all about that experience. So. That's right. That's right. Well, Dan, I really absolutely appreciate you coming on the show again. Hopefully we can touch base maybe midway through the season, at which point we can celebrate the fact that the Tigers are in first place and 12 games ahead of everybody else. Give a call anytime. All right. Thanks, Dan. All right. You're welcome, guys. All right, well, that is going to do it for another episode of The Voice of the Turtle. Rob, any any parting words? I know your your throat is probably just ripped and dry at this point. Honestly, I'm more just happy that I got to talk to Dan Dickerson. That was pretty cool. Isn't that awesome? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it when he stops by. He's always very willing to talk baseball with us. He just likes to talk about baseball, I think, and it's it's cool that he is willing to converse with us on those subjects. We'll have to get him back, I don't know, June maybe. Definitely one of the perks of this job. Absolutely, it is. We'll just wait till Mario and Pemba comes along. We'll have all kinds of fun when, when, we, when Rod we, Allen. That's right. Do it. I'll bet Rod would do the show. Ooh, we should get Gibson on here too. You know, I, I now I'm kind of showing what's going on behind closed doors. I have looked into that, um, and, and still sort of looking into that, and just sort of a matter of where he's at with his health, and you know whether he has the energy to kind of take time for a phone call or whatever. But if things work out uh, this next season, yeah, I would absolutely love to get Kurt Gibson on the show long time um idol of mine i watched him play growing up so we could talk run expectancy with him i would love to i would love to know when he discovered that what he thinks of it uh, if it's something that should be used more frequently oh yeah ton of questions for for gibby baby all right remember we are only one half of the conversation you're the other half so leave your comments for us at the website at blessyouboys.com or find us on twitter at hookslide byb or byb rob or send us an email, bybtigers at gmail.com. So on behalf of Rob Jackie and Inaccurate Projection Systems Everywhere, this is Hook Slide reminding you that no amount of data analysis can prepare you for the awesomeness that is Miguel Cabrera. And we'll see you next time on The Voice of the Turtle.